Oh my god, guys. It's Frankie. And it's Misa. And we are so excited to finally be back in recording. Yeah, we kind of took an unexpected break. And Frankie, I'll let you take it from here. <laughs> yes, so I want to profusely apologize. It is all my fault. Um, as you know, my regular day job is a teacher. And so I am surrounded by tons of germs and um, just lots of stress. And all of that combined um, led to like an eight-day horrifying migraine in which I just could not defeat. And I ended up getting vertigo. And um, it was a nightmare. It was, in my opinion, and I mean, I don't mean this to sound rude to anyone, it's almost worse than what I thought COVID would be. Like if I ever caught it at work, um, I, I literally couldn't even stand up straight or look down at my phone or do anything. Um, and it pains me to be sick. I hate being sick. I hate not being able to do everything that I need to get done. Um, but it was good to take a break. And then Thanksgiving break happened and it was just, it's been restful and hopefully I can continue to be that way. And so anyways, I'm just really sorry that I delayed spooky season into December, but Hey, who's really complaining? Nobody, nobody's <laughs> complaining ever. Yeah, man, it sucked. Like I couldn't even really, like I felt guilty texting you because I knew that it was hurting your head to stare at your phone. Yes. Like I was dizzy. Like I almost fell over and that's when my um, assistant principal happened to walk in and she was like, so I can't make you leave, but you need to leave. And I was like, I'm fine. The lights are off. We're making it work. And she was like, no, no, you got to go home and you need to go to the doctor. And, and that is a perfect illustration of who you are. You're the tis but a scratch character. Yeah, totally like, a flesh wound. You... <laughs> Like you will be, you will be transforming into a zombie and you'll be like, no, I'm fine. I'm just dehydrated. Like it. <laughs> and, and on top of that, guys, Frankie is the person who apologizes for things that she cannot control. Like, I'm sorry I was sick. I'm sorry that my car didn't start. Like it, this isn't your fault, but she's, that's how guilty she feels when she has to miss things. I really do. Frankie's just that person and I'm just over here like please don't feel bad about being sick like you you couldn't tell Vertigo like hey chill out for a few days I have a podcast to record <laughs> I know I'm sitting here like Misa I'm so sorry please tell everyone I'm so sorry because I know we had hyped it up because we love spooky season and here I am like practically dying um feeling horrible and it just, I just want to thank everyone for being so understanding, especially Misa. And I know you're right. I can't control it, but it just, it sucks. It does. It does. But it's all good. And everyone thought you had COVID. Um, which... Yeah, I, I do not have COVID, guys. Thank goodness. I now just, you know, keep those thoughts and hugs and prayers and, you know, whatever coming that I don't get COVID because I am, I mean, I'm in a school setting and as safe as we can be, I'll be super honest with you guys. Like there is zero way that we can follow every single CDC guideline, zero way. Um, so we are just doing the best we can. And I can't tell you how much I literally bathe in Lysol 
and Germex and washing my hands. Like my hands are so dry because I wash them so many times every single day. Um, it's, it's terrifying. And I know some people aren't as worried about it, but as a person who has children and who has several people in my family who are immunocompromised, I mean, one of my best friends is immunocompromised. Um, it's, it's a big deal for me. I don't want to spread this to anyone. And I've had friends who have lost moms, dads, brothers, sisters to COVID in this short amount of months that we've been fighting this virus. So um, yeah, we just take it super serious. Yeah. I don't think any precaution is too extreme at this point. I think nobody should be accused of being a germaphobe. Nobody should be accused of like being too paranoid. Like we weren't too paranoid before and now millions of people are like dying. Exactly. Exactly. And I'm so sorry, but if you're one of those, like the flu kills more, blah, 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 blah. Please don't come at me. Don't talk to me. Goodbye. Like we're not doing that here. <laughs> yeah. No. Whenever people say that around me, I just kind of look at them and I'm like, but why would I want to catch the flu? Like, exactly. if it's just as bad as the flu, you're saying the flu is bad. So why would I want to put myself out of commission for two weeks to catch the flu? Like, you can die from the flu too. Exactly. I mean, I'm sorry, guys. Why would I want to knowingly catch any virus that I could be cautious and stop? Right. Exactly. Like, I feel like this could be the zombie apocalypse and people would still be advocating for the undead rights. Exactly. So whatever, people are dumb. So aside from being sick, everything's good though, right? <laughs> yeah, everything's good. Um, we spent a very low-key, you know, um, at-home Thanksgiving. We didn't have anyone over who wasn't in our family. Um, and it was perfect. I mean, I'm, I really truly believe that and I know we've talked about this before, Misa, that COVID is kind of like that blessing in disguise, even though it's a horrible thing, um, because it does make us like slow down and really appreciate what we do have, because, I mean, you have to make the best of the situation. And so we had a great time staying home, and I went non-traditional because I, for one, personally, am not a huge fan of traditional Thanksgiving foods. Um, I don't particularly like turkey. I don't eat ham. I do love stuffing and I do love mashed potatoes, but those are things that I can make throughout the year. Um, so for me, we completely embraced our Hispanic side and we made tamales and flautas and had a grand old Hispanic feast and it was delicious. Yeah, you sent me a picture. I was just like, that looks awesome. I love that you went like in a completely different direction, you know, because turkey sucks. It does. It's dry. I don't care what you say. Fight me. Turkey sucks. Agreed. <laughs> I've never liked turkey. I've never liked turkey. So I think that's really cool that you guys did that. And safety. <laughs> it was great. Yes, exactly. Yep. And no Black Friday shopping out there. Like we, you know, and I mean, people are like, you can't live your life in fear. But I mean, do you, do you wear a seatbelt every time you get in the car? Yeah, I saw a meme that was like, oh, people who don't want to wear masks then get into the car that is registered to the state. They put on the seatbelt because it's the law and they drive with a license that the state give, like granted them permission. For. Exactly. And then they, they go to a store where they have to wear shoes and a shirt because it's enforced. And oh, God, the mask is the problem. Right. Oh, oh. And all these people have bank accounts. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you're being monitored. So, what the fuck is a mask? <laughs> Where are your fucking masks, idiots? Yeah, sorry. We'll hop off our soapbox now. Although I like to think that the people who are listening to us are intelligent enough not to have to be told. I'm going to say I think everyone who for sure I know listens to us are amazing followers. They are very much aware of the situation and the severity, and they all feel the same way we do. So, <laughs> Okay, cool. Because uh, if you are an anti-masker or a virus denier, Please don't breathe too hard on me, thanks. Yeah, we appreciate it. <laughs> anyway, um, so uh, even though spooky season technically is over on a calendar year, <laughs> here at Soundtrack City, where we talk about the soundtracks to some of our favorite media, in this case movies, it's still spooky season, and I think that's cool. That's cool, right? Absolutely. I've been watching, I mean, I watch scary movies all year. Spooky season, I really amped it up. And so there are a couple of scary movies that I watched recently that I actually really liked. Yeah? That I wanted to talk about really briefly, yeah. Oh, I'm excited, okay? I'm I'm for it. I've been in a really, like, dark, spooky mood. So this is, I mean, I love, I'm loving it. <laughs> Part of the reason why horror fans are horror fans is because it's fear in a controlled environment. And at this point, like, horror movies are so much less scary than real life. Yeah. <laughs> so so I think that's part of the reason why it's it's been so easy to indulge in them much more. Because it's like, oh, oh, if only the demons would come out of the mirror. Like, that would be cool instead of a fucking virus and an idiot president. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean... <laughs> I mean, not to me, but I mean, if it happened in the news, you'd be like, oh, shit, something exciting. Um, yeah, like, damn, where's, let me research. But so I did recently subscribe to Shudder, which is that uh, it's like a movie streaming service, but it's just horror movies. Oh, nice. So I've been I've been kind of watching movies here and there from that. I've been watching a lot of old school movies like Summer Party Massacre. And yesterday I watched April Fool's Day. I was actually, I was not expecting much from April Fool's Day. But by the end, I was laughing hysterically. It was really, really enjoyable. And I really liked it. This is the 80s one, correct? Yeah, it's the old one. Yeah. Okay, right. Um, so that one was fun. And then, uh, some movies that I actually watched, uh, right around Halloween, like the week of Halloween, I want to say the Hell House LLC trilogy, and then the two Houses October built movies. Have you heard of those? Ooh, no, those I haven't. I have not. So please dive in. I watched Hell House LLC first. Because uh, I've mentioned her before. I, I can't remember her name off the top of my head. But she, her YouTube is Possessed by Horror. And she's this red-headed chick who talks about horror movies. Kind of like your TikTok chick. Yes, yes, yes. yes. Kind of like that. And so, like, she's on YouTube. And she's, she, you know, she talks about movies and stuff. And so she recommended Hell House LLC. And it intrigued me. And it turns out it's one of those, like, uh, kind of found footage film documentary type looking formats. Which I really don't mind. I just think the Blair Witch Project is trash, but that's just, mm -hmm. and the paranormal activities are just garbage. But I do like other movies that use the same format because I think other movies do it better. Sorry, not sorry. Anyway, <laughs> um, so Hell House LLC is uh, is actually a trilogy, which I didn't realize until I watched the first one. And the first one is about 
a group of five friends who own a company. And what they do is that every year they try to create a better and better haunted house. Ooh. And so the, the, the documentary starts off with like found footage uh, because the night of their opening, uh, they had taken up residence for their haunted house at an abandoned hotel in a town outside of New York. And there's all these rumors and stories about why the hotel closed and the owner and what he was into and stuff. But they went ahead and used it for their haunted house. And on the first day that they opened, um, some big quote-unquote malfunction occurred and nobody knows what happened, but there are multiple fatalities, multiple injuries, and it's just like a big mystery that you have to go in and figure out. <laughs> Interesting. And that spans over the whole trilogy? It So you do find out, um, yeah, yeah. You have to, if you want to know the entire story, you definitely want to watch all three because you only get so much information in part one. Um, and then in part two, I remember I watched part two and after I watched it, I, I texted my friend Tyler and I was like, I'm not sure if part two was good or if my standards of horror have lowered. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but I, I liked it. I liked all three of them. The third one made me cry. Oh, uh, the third one takes an interesting turn and out of sadness or out of like scared like sadness okay 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 um so I really I liked the culmination of the three there were some things that I was like oh shit I did not see that coming and there were parts that did really creep me out and I am gonna warn you there are a few clowns oh you know I can't watch it yeah so uh but then the other one that I liked that um I think there are also I can't remember specifically if there are clowns, but if there are, it's because they, it's also about haunted houses and they interview some of the people who work at the haunted house and they'll be in costume. Oh, really? Yeah. So like, so Hell House is one trilogy and then the Houses October Built is the other one. And it's a very similar, I thought they were very similar because Houses October Built is about a group of five friends. And in both movies, it's four guys and a girl. Part one of Hell House and part one of October Houses October Built. Yeah. Um, so that off the bat was like, oh, these are really similar. And then they both begin the movie with a, a group photo of the five of them. And I'm like, okay, this is... So I was kind of not expecting much from Houses October Built. But then it ends up being about the five friends. And what they do is they take road trips. And they're trying to find the scariest haunted houses through word of mouth. So they're trying to find the ones out in the middle of nowhere um, that you like you only hear about on those billboards on the road and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And so they're, yeah. they're just in an RV traveling across the country, visiting different haunted houses and taping everything. Oh, my gosh. So where exactly do they go? Like everywhere in the U.S.? They, I can't remember where they start. I know they pass through Texas. I know they go to Louisiana, um, and okay. they hit a couple of places. They hit, they hit a couple of small towns in Texas for sure. And then so there's that one, and then that that one has a sequel too. And okay. I liked, I liked all five of the movies. They're not related. the The two series are not related, but they did have some similarities, and I thought they were fun. I thought they, you know, they didn't 
I didn't really get very many like jump scares, but I will tease that Houses October Built is very possibly a future spooky season soundtrack. Ooh, okay, so I'm excited to hear the music then. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah, so, so those are fun. And then I told you about when I watched The Gift and how it creeped me out. Yes, and I rewatched it just because I didn't know if uh, we were going to talk about it, so I rewatched it. It's creepy, right? <laughs> yes, and um, I wasn't as freaked out about it. I think that it's like it's a fucked up movie. Um, I think to me though, and I think this is just like my background fear. I do not. I love windows, but I would never live in a house with that many windows ever oh I know right and especially like they don't even have curtains or screens or anything yeah that's terrifying for those of you who might be out of the loop I recently watched The Gift from 2015 for the first time ever and that movie fucked me up yeah and that's not even like a movie that you can trip on drugs with like that movie fucked me up for this like societal fears like Oh, that guy was creepy. Oh my god, I was I was legitimately squirming in my chair. Every time he came on screen, I could feel something crawling under my skin. I woke up in the middle of the night and all I could think of was his face. Oh god, that's terrifying. It no. was creepy and I love the movie though and I got I like as soon as I was done with it it was like 1 30 in the morning and I wanted to watch it again like immediately but I didn't because it was so emotionally exhausting yeah that was a hard movie to watch because there are a lot of things in there like um just the whole relationship and the way he like was an asshole to his wife and all of that really struck a nerve with me mm-hmm. um I mean, he was a fucking bully. Um, And I just, I didn't even realize that the creepy guy wrote and directed and produced, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah. I thought that was cool, too. And I didn't realize until afterward that that guy was Tom in The Great Gatsby. So that's really cool. And I was like, holy shit, that guy's like a really transformative actor. Like I had, I never would have thought that. Yeah, exactly. Like he's, the fact that he's able to go from this role to great, like I was like, what? Because of course I looked up like his whole, you know, filmography. Mm -hmm. Because we're nerds. And I was like, oh my God, this man, look at this span of acting. Yeah, yeah. Good movie. Good movie. I I wish I, I'm surprised I slept on it for so long because I love Jason Bateman. I adore Jason oh Bateman. But in this movie I detested I him. I hated him. Detested hated him. Awful. Yeah. Awful human being. So Exactly. For him to be in a movie that made me take away all of my like love and adoration for him, that's good shit. Yeah, that's a good movie. Good he, he played the role very well. Good shit. Very well. Yeah, man. Um and then, sorry guys, I know I've been talking a while, but there's all these things I wanted to catch up with Frankie on. <laughs> I'm sorry. The last thing I wanted to mention was, did you hear the new Foo Fighters song? No. 
Oh, they they debuted their new single for their album. Their album isn't coming out until February 5th. It's called Medicine at Midnight. But they released the single about, I want to say, two, two and a half weeks ago. And uh, they played it on SNL when Dave Chappelle was the host. And Oh, I'm lying. Okay, I saw it after. I didn't see it that Saturday. Angel showed it to me. Okay, what'd you think? I am a fan. Cool. Cool. And I would just like to go on the record and say Dave Grohl is like wine. He ages so nicely. Yeah, yeah, he does. I agree. I I like the song too. I saw a lot of people kind of shitting on it because it's not your typical Foo Fighter fare, if you will. But I think that's why I liked it. Yeah, I think... I think that's why I liked it because it's, again, it's different, which, you know, why would you want to sound the same all the time? Which, I mean, I'm even a fan of them and I'll admit sometimes they do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I'm with you. Like, I do appreciate that they did something different. And I'm going to be honest, like for the past, like a little over two years, I've kind of gotten away from their music because like all their music is really loud and it's really happy and they have really like optimistic tones and... And, and messages and stuff like that. But, I mean, I haven't really been in the mood for that kind of music. Is that okay? Yeah. I think it is. I mean, especially this year. <laughs> yes, exactly. Thank you. Especially this year. Um, and so that's, so I've kind of gotten away from them uh, the last few years. Like, they weren't even on my top five on Spotify wrapped. Oh, God, neither was. Yeah. I saw yours. Oh, yeah. Yeah, mine was no surprise, I don't think. <laughs> but yeah, I just I found myself just kind of delving into a lot of gloomy, darker kind of music these past couple years. And and Foo wasn't one of them. Um, and so it's nice to hear them release something that sounds the way I feel. And I like the video. The video is really artsy. The only thing I'm not a fan of is like, I'm not a fan of when a band makes a video and the whole band isn't in the video. Oh, I agree. I feel like everyone needs to be there. Yeah. And Foo, Foo usually does a really good job of being inclusive on their videos. And I remember like Dave has said in the past that like, he kind of prefers it that way. So it, I, don't get me wrong. I, it's not that I'm not a fan of a girl crawling all over Dave because she's a contortionist, <laughs> but uh, I thought it would have been cool to see the band playing in the background or something in the dark, maybe. Okay. I'm going to have to watch the video and then we can reconvene because I'm going to, I'm going to have to like take notes like you did. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I mean, I just kind of jotted some thoughts down because I knew I was going to talk to you about it. When I first saw it on SNL, like the lyrics really struck me um, because it says stuff like, if you want to, I'll make you feel something real just to bother you. Now I got you under my thumb like a drug. I will smother you. Oh, God. And it's, I like that it's bluesy. I like that it's slow. I don't know. Yeah, it was the bluesy tones that really stuck out to me. Yeah, yeah. So I'm interested to hear the rest. Um, but it's gonna be a it's gonna be a minute before we hear anything. Ah, uh, dang! February can't come fast enough. We shall see. Okay, so 
that does it for me. Um, that's all, those are some of the things I wanted to talk to you about, like music and movie-wise, uh, these past few weeks. And now we can go into soundtracks. Okay. Yay. Yay. And I didn't know this, but apparently I'm going first today. <laughs> Surprise. Guys, I'm not prepared. I'm, like, I'm prepared, obviously, but I was just like, I went into this thinking like, okay, Frankie's going to go first and I'm going to sit back and get comfortable and listen to her talk about, oh, I guess I shouldn't say it out loud. Oh, no, don't say um, I know what it is. You guys don't know what it is. And I just thought I was going to get comfortable and listen to her talk about this, you know, certain soundtrack. And then she's like, you're going first. And I was like, oh, well, <laughs> shit. And she's like, wait, pause. Let me get all my life together. Yeah, I pretty much had to take a moment to like mentally prepare and, and yeah, it just, okay, so that's fine. It's all good. It's all good. It's all good. We're going to get through it. Um, So Frankie, you don't know my movie, do you? I don't know. This was your surprise one. Remember I messed up um, and I thought your surprise one was the second one like mine was, but it was not. And I'm looking at your clue right now. Um. And I have no idea. I don't know if I've seen this movie, Misa. So I see a hand. Bloody has a knife. And they're in front of some kind of, looks like a room, because there's some kind of painting or ugly decor on the wall. <laughs> Not a fan <laughs> of the decor. Um, it looks like possibly an 90s is movie just because I'm looking at the quality of the blood but you did also mm-hmm. zoom in so I'm not sure if that's just me being ridiculous not a super recent movie at least no um it looks more like a, a 90s maybe early 2000s no I wouldn't even do that I would say 90s movie mm-hmm. um it looks like this looks like a male's hand and I don't, I don't know. There's not a lot going on. I cannot say that I recognize this decor. Um, I'm excited to see this. It looks like a cleaver. Just a cleaver. Mm-hmm. The fuck? Do I know this movie? I've never heard you talk about this movie, but I am like pretty positive that you had to have watched this movie at some point in your life. Oh my god, I'm excited. Okay. <laughs> All right, lay it on us, Misa. What is your final fourth installment of Spooky Season? Oh, guys, I'm so excited. So the picture is meant to throw you off because the hand in the photo belongs to a female, and she is not the killer. Oh. And she's not even holding the killer's weapon. Oh, my God. Okay, so she's fighting someone. Mm-hmm. Is this a Jason movie? No. Okay, go ahead. Okay, I'm going to answer your question with a question of my own. Oh. <laughs> Have you ever called Candyman? <gasps> You're doing it! <laughs> Candyman. <laughs> oh my god, I'm so excited. Oh, fuck. Yes. Can we talk about Candyman, please? I fucking love Candyman. Oh my gosh. I'm so excited. I was not expecting you to cover this one. Oh, fuck yeah. So, have you ever called Candyman before? <laughs> no. 
Mm-mm. No, I had a horrible experience. I almost broke my foot running out of the bathroom after calling. Um, oh my God, I can't even think about it right now. Um, Medusa? No, what was it? You went into the bathroom and she gave you Bloody her Mary? baby. Okay, Bloody Mary. And then there was another one and you said it like so many times. Yeah. My dad scared the shit out of me. Yes, it was Bloody Mary. Um, there was another one though too. I can't remember that one, but Bloody Mary is the one that like, no, never again, never calling anyone. Uh, we lived in this old house. I was having a sleepover. My dad terrified me. I tripped over my sleeping cat and twisted my ankle wrong. And it was just a horrible experience. I was being dramatic. Never again, never again. Sorry, candy man. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. That's t- so. So after that, you were absolutely not going to call anyone. <laughs> nope. Sh- that ruined it. <laughs> and wow. I terrified my cat, too. So <laughs> several, several people were injured. <laughs> oh, gosh. Oh, gosh. But no, no casualties, thankfully. No casualties. Thank God. <laughs> cool. 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 Well. I have called Candyman before. Oh, how did it go? I have a story. Uh, it's not Ooh. much of a story, guys. Okay, so I was in third grade, and I don't remember. Oh, my gosh. I do not remember how this ended up getting planned. I don't remember if it was, like, the day before me and some of the friends, that the girls that I was friends with talked about it, or maybe I heard about it that morning, but... In my elementary school, when we would get there, uh, the kids would have to go all the way down to the hallways, girls on one side, boys on one side, and we would just line up along the wall until it was time for school to start. And so uh, it was morning time, and we were all, like, sitting in that line or whatever. And, I again, I don't know how I got involved in this, but there were four girls that I was friends with, and I can't remember exactly who they were right now. One of them's name was Lucia. And so, like, what the plan was, was that we would all ask to go to the bathroom right after one another. And um, I don't know why the teachers would let five girls go into one bathroom at the same time. Like, that's just stupid. But yeah, <laughs> but it was the 90s. So um, the teacher, like, we would raise our hand and be like, can you go to the bathroom? So we all went into the same bathroom. And one of us turned off the lights and then we all gathered around the sink and we turned it on and we chanted Bloody Mary Candyman five times each. <sighs> Nothing happened. <laughs> oh. One of my friends claimed that she saw a face in the sink, but I'm like, we're in complete darkness. You're full of shit. And so then we all went to class and it was whatever. And then I remember uh, then we like we switched classes or whatever. And I was in I was in my like language arts class and I had that class with Rachel. You know, Rachel. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had that class with Rachel and I kind of I was sitting next to her while we were listening to the teacher talk or whatever, read or something. I don't know. We all had our notebooks with us. And I look over Rachel's shoulder and she's making a list. And the list is called my friends who called BM and it's underlined and she's like listing the girls that I was in the bathroom with. And I was like, what's BM? And she's like, Bloody Mary. And I was like, oh, I did it too. And she looked at me and she was like, you did? And she just looked at me like I was disgusting. And then she wrote my name down. (laughs) That's random. Yeah, of all people, Rachel. 
Yeah, what did she do with the list? I don't know. I think she just didn't want to talk to us that week. <laughs> I think she was mad. Oh, okay. Because, like, y'all didn't invite her or something? I got the impression that she was mad because we called her and we shouldn't have. Ah, okay, okay. But, uh... That makes sense. But it, but that's why I'm like Rachel. Really, you're, were you scared, <laughs> Rachel? But anyway, uh, that was my experience, and I never called anyone again. And I mean, I would, I would, I could do it right now if you guys want. Just turn the lights off. I have a mirror. Do it. I, do it. Yeah. Okay. Do it. Let's see. I gotta turn my lights off. Hang on, guys. <laughs> and let there be darkness. I do have to keep my computer on, though. I hope that's cool. Of course. I have a mirror right here. Yes. Are you going to say it with me? Sure. Okay, because I think you're safe. <laughs> yeah, I'm good. Okay. <clears throat> Bloody Mary Candyman? Or... Oh, I was just going to do Candyman. Okay. Candyman. 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 No. Well, guys. Anywho, let's talk about Candyman. Candyman premiered in the U.S. on October sixteenth, nineteen ninety-two. This was six months after the Rodney King trial verdict and the riots began. Oh, wow. Yeah, so um, this really hit a chord with people because of all the uh, societal issues that were going on then. And, you know, to be honest, that continue on today. So I do have a little spiel I wanted to go through before I start this movie. Um, This is a movie that I really wanted to see as a kid. Um, there was that rental video store across the street from my house and I would always walk to it and I can't even tell you where the other sections were. I just knew if I walked in straight past one section, left past one row, and then I was in the horror aisle and I parked my ass there all the time and I stared at those covers and I read the backs of them and I studied that shit and Candyman was always there, but I never rented it. I love it. And so it was something that I always wanted to see and I remember even like, when Final Destination came out, my sisters were like, oh, that's Candyman. And I was like, I even knew who he was. And I didn't even see the movie yet. So I was like, I really need to see Candyman. And I think that's what I would hear is like mumblings from my sisters because they were older. and But I never brought myself to rent it. And so now as an adult, I, I'm actually kind of glad that I didn't watch it as a kid. Because to be completely honest, I only recently watched Candyman, like maybe 2019. Oh, okay. Very, very recently. And I, again, I'm kind of glad I didn't watch it too early in my life because I'm pretty sure I would have been scarred for life with some of these images. Yeah, it's it's a gruesome movie. I have, I've watched it once um, and it was a, it was a bit for me. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's definitely got some disturbing stuff in it, but I loved it. I think it's art. I just, I think it's beautiful. And it's such a, it's such a tragedy. It's such a tragic story, you know, because, because his evil was only spawned from other people's evil, which I'll get into later. Mm -hmm. Um, 
But uh, again, another reason why I, I'm glad I waited to watch it is because I don't think I would have appreciated it as much if I was like a fucking eight-year-old kid watching Candyman, you know? Yeah, yeah, I completely agree with you. But I'm sure I would have been fucking terrified. <laughs> so I'm a little sad I missed out on that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I remember when I first saw this and the opening credits began and the score came in and like those haunting vocals started up and I was just absolutely in love with this movie immediately. The names of the cast weren't even done scrolling yet and I knew that like this was going to be a new favorite for me and it is absolutely probably one of my top, I definitely top 10, possibly top 5 horror movies of all time now. Wow. Yeah, I love this movie. And there is there is one thing that I wanted to say about this movie before I go on. I wanted to talk about this movie over the summer when we did our Black Lives Matter episode. Candyman's origin story begins with his real name, Daniel Robitaille. And he was a black man who was wronged by a community and publicly killed. But however, like he didn't die then. And his story became a legend, a cautionary tale, if you will. He became a figure within the black community, an idol to some. He's a black man who, when you say his name, you give him power and he comes to life. So back in June, we did an episode honoring black figures in film because of the social unrest after George Floyd's death and the accumulative totals of the black people being killed by authority figures. And so in the wake of George Floyd's death, I wanted so badly to talk about this movie because I saw so many similarities between him and Candyman, who, yes, is a villain, but was initially a good, educated man who fell in love and people thought that was wrong. Yeah. So to me, they are alike in that they were both black men who were done wrong, black men who were killed because of their skin color. Black men whose death came of those in higher power and who used their power for bad, and black men whose names live on in history. You know, I think back to the protests that I attended in May, and all those people in the giant crowd in the streets shouting, say his name, George Floyd, say his name. I found it very powerful because the name George Floyd is now very powerful because it's an example, it's a story, it's a legend in the community now. His name, his death, woke a movement that refuses to stay quiet. Black people were hurting, continuing to hurt, and had been hurting for far too long. When George Floyd died, they'd had enough. And so with his name comes the demand for safety and equality and justice. And there's a power in the name of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Trayvon Martin. And only in our world, the monsters look like humans and they walk like humans and they wear badges like cops. So I chose not to cover Candyman for that episode because I was sure that a black man playing a villain would rub people the wrong way at the time. And while my reasons for relating fiction with reality may made sense to me, I worry that it would sound like a stretch to others. I worried it would sound a little tone deaf. So that's why I went with Creed instead. And the comparisons only go so far in my mind, but the story and the wrongdoing resonated with the current climate of things, I felt. Uh, But in my mind, since I love horror and the villains are the heroes, Bernard Rose, who is the director of this film, actually agrees with me. Mm -hmm. I, I wanted to stress that point so that people would realize, like, I'm not trying to villainize anyone. You know, I don't want to, I don't want people to see black people in an antagonistic light. 
I felt like it was going to be a lot less explaining if I just kind of kept Candyman on the back burner for a little bit. But even watching it now, even though the protests have, you know, gone a little quiet and, you know, your Instagram feed is back to normal, uh, you know, black people are still out there fighting for their lives and their rights. And Candyman resonates now as much as it ever did, even more so, I think. I completely agree with you. Um and I do understand why we went a different route, because I know we talked about it for our Black Lives Matter episode. And I think it's important that you're covering it now. And I just want to say thank you, um, because like you said, there's just too many people um, in my mind going back to like, okay, things are back, you know, back to normal. But it's an everyday thing that we need to remind people that, yes, Black Lives still do matter. And we should still be fighting for those equal rights every day. Exactly. You know, black people don't get to take a break from fighting for their rights. You know, they eat, sleep, and breathe having to fight for their rights. You know, we, the rest of us are just privileged to be able to drive down the road at night and not worry about getting profiled the way they do, you know? Yeah. I think everyone, it's, I know it was going around before, but like, check your privilege. (laughs) That aside, guys, I promise now I'm going to talk about the Candyman soundtrack. <laughs> so, Candyman premiered in the U.S. on October 16, 1992, directed by Bernard Rose and screenwritten also by Bernard Rose. This was adapted from the story by Clive Barker, who was also the producer of this film. Clive Barker is also known for Hellraiser and The Midnight Meat Train, just to name a few. Candyman is based on his story called The Forbidden, which is a short story from his Books of Blood, published in the mid-80s. This cast, I feel like Candyman is another movie that can kind of be a play, because the cast is kind of small, but I could see it playing out on stage, you know? Yeah, ooh, that would be exciting to see it on stage. Indeed. So we have in this film Virginia Madsen playing Helen. We have Tony Todd, who plays... The Candyman, also known as Daniel Robitaille, but we don't find out his real name until part two, guys. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, Xander Berkeley, who plays Trevor. If he sounds familiar and you're a Walking Dead fan, it's because he played Gregory. Yes. Yeah, which I took me a minute because I'm like, he seems tall in Candyman, but he seems short in Walking Dead. I agree with you. That was, and I didn't even realize that was him until I'm looking it up right now, actually. Yeah, I didn't realize it until uh, I was watching Dead Meat. Remember that channel I sent you where he does like all the kill counts and stuff? Yeah. Yeah, he did an episode on, he did episodes on the Candyman trilogy. And that's when he was like, oh, Xander Berkeley from Walking Dead. And I was like, what the fuck? What the fuck? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, We also have in this film Casey Lemons, who plays Bernadette. If she sounds familiar, she's also Jodie Foster's friend in Silence of the Lambs. Mm -hmm. Then we have Vanessa Williams, who is returning for the new Candyman film. She is returning, reprising her role as Anne-Marie. Is she really? Yes. And the baby in this film is the grown man in the new Candyman film. Wow. Yeah, that's Anthony. That's Tony. Full circle. The baby. 
Yep, and then we also have Dewan Guy, who plays Jake in this film as our token child actor. <laughs> cool, good thing. All right, so before I go on, some of the sources that I use for my research include the Music Sales Group, Music Magic, Wikipedia, The Hollywood Reporter, The Film Scorer, Toronto Symphony Orchestra's YouTube, philipglass.com, and IGN. The movie opens with an aerial shot of Chicago, Illinois, and the opening credits start to roll, and we're hearing a score by Philip Glass, and this particular track is called Cabrini Green. is really just a very simple opening shot because it's just a helicopter pan just kind of going over a lot of the city buildings and the highways and we see the traffic and we can kind of hear mumblings from some of the city dwellers but overall this is just kind of an introduction to our setting everything in this film does take place in Chicago where the legend lives um, and so one thing that I love about the score is that it's very minimalistic because the only instruments Philip Glass used to compose this score included an organ, a piano, and some vocals. Oh, wow. And that's it. Those are the three components that comprise the entire score to Candyman. So immediately, the sounds of the score are piercing your brain, and you kind of hear these really haunting vocals come in, and it sounds like very underworldly, very dark, very trapped souls, you know. Um, there's a real level of uncertainty here, and it's an organ primarily, and so the organ really offers a very gothic atmosphere, and it fits really well with the urban settings of Chicago. The organ is very powerful, and it rem it's reminiscent of when you enter a haunted house or a creepy castle in the movies. Only in this case, we're not really entering a haunted house, but rather a haunted history of the city. And the score may seem limited and a little bit repetitive, but I think it's effective for those same reasons. It's doing so much with so little, and you still get the sensation that the sounds are churning inside your head. And there's also this really added mystery with the score because the film is about to blur the lines between fairy tale and reality. So this track by composer Philip Glass, who did the entire score for the film, really helps transport us between these worlds because we're not really sure where we are anymore. We're not really sure which side of the line we are between like fiction and reality. And so it's almost like the point of view is us and we're kind of omnipresent, and we're watching this urban legend unfold. And so this is a really cool introduction to this film. Uh, it's very, again, very minimal. Uh, we're just kind of getting a taste, and it's really setting the mood for what we're about to see. Some fun facts about this scene, because again, it is all an aerial shot, and everything is completely pointing down, and the camera is completely steady as it pans from right to left. To achieve this shot, they actually used a machine that was new at the time called Skycam. And this helped with the steady shot and no vibrations. In the late 60s, um, is, uh, sorry, blah, blah. 
In the late 60s is when Philip Glass began to experiment with minimalist style, which has since become one of his trademarks. Philip says that he believes that music is a place, and it's as real as Chicago and St. Louis. He says that a musician lives his life with one foot in this world and one foot in the real world. And I think that's kind of a perfect simile to how he treats this score and how the score treats the film. This is going to be a story about an urban legend that some people don't believe, but we're about to find out that it is very much real and dangerous and scary. Um, and everything that we thought we knew was wrong. One of the reasons why I really like this score is because this opening track really reminds me of a cross between The Exorcist and The Omen. Wouldn't you agree? Yes. Definitely. Yeah. Like that very, like, kind of gothic, almost churchy, but creepy churchy sound. That is one thing that stuck out to me because it was not just the instruments that were being used, but it's the timing and the way the notes are held in certain points. Um, it's it's super creepy, and it's a vibe. It's a total vibe, and I love it. Yeah, that just shows. It doesn't take a whole big band to make people feel things, you know? You know what? Exactly. And that kind of leads me into what Bernard Rose said, because Bernard Rose, director, said that he wanted this score to behave differently than in other horror movies. He says that normally the music in horror movies tells you when to be scared, and to him, that takes away from the fear. Oh, good point. So that's why he wanted to kind of approach this very differently. And so that's why, like, there are a lot of scenes where it's actually very quiet when there sh when normally there would be, like, a screeching violin or, like, a really foreboding cello, like... I think the silence speaks volumes, you know, pun intended, if you will, uh, with how little the music was used. Absolutely. And I, that's, oh my God, that's genius. Because you're right. It's like your mind is already preparing yourself. And that's when you get the true terror. And I think that's why this movie is so scary. Um, because you do have those quiet moments when you normally have kind of that foreshadowing from the music. Um, and you don't have that with this movie. Exactly. Exactly. And that's, I think that's part of the reason why I really love and appreciate this score. I, I love that it behaves so differently. That already makes it so different as a horror movie to others. Yes. So after the opening shot and opening credits, we see a shot of, thousands of bees just bees buzzing around and if you're one of those people you get a little itchy while you're watching it and uh we hear the candy man's voice and he says they say that i have shed innocent blood what's blood for if not for shedding with my hook for a hand i'll split you from your groin to your gullet i love the word gullet sorry yeah it's a it's a very um it's a very raw word, you know? You could say throat, but gullet just sounds so much more fierce. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. So right after we hear these words, we kind of crossfade from the bees and we meet Helen. And as we're transitioning to meet Helen, we hear another amazing piece by Philip Glass called Music Box. 
So this is when we meet Helen. She's played by Virginia Madsen. She's gorgeous. She's smoking a cigarette. And she's listening to a college student tell a story that she heard. Yeah, I know this story, and it's totally true. And she tells a story of a girl named Clara. Clara was babysitting a baby, and this all happened in Indiana. And she let a boy named Billy come over. And so she led him upstairs to the bathroom. And she was like, have you ever called Candyman? And so she explains that if you call Candyman, if you say his name five times in the mirror, he'll appear behind you, breathing down your neck. And so she coerces Billy to say Candyman four times. And she stops him at the fifth one. And this is apparently her version of foreplay. Yeah, like, <laughs> that should have been your red flag there, sir. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, who of all places to go in an empty house where the kid is asleep and you have a boy come over, you take him to their dirty bathroom and you call Candyman. <laughs> and now I'm ready. <laughs> Dude, get on your motorcycle and go home. <laughs> Sorry. Anyway, um, so she makes him call Candyman, but she stops him. And so she's like, go downstairs. And so he goes to wait for her downstairs. So, like, that was weird. And so she stays in the bathroom. She turns out the light, and she says, Candyman, one more time. And then he appears, and he kills her, and the baby, too. And apparently, according to the urban legend, which, again, this girl says is true because she knows someone who knows someone, Billy's hair turned white from shock. I love how you said that. Know someone who knows someone. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's always how they start. Like folklore, chain letters, that kind of shit. Like it's always someone who knew someone you know or something like that. And that's what gives it validity. My and... best friend's uncle. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. Or like the Ferris Bueller. He's sick. My best friend's sister's brother's boyfriend heard from this guy who knows this kid who went to a show who saw Ferris pass out at 21 exactly. Flavors last night. Guess it's pretty serious. Exactly. <laughs> That's exactly how it starts. And so Helen is just kind of like recording this because it's for her thesis. And throughout this whole little story and us meeting Helen and her talking to the girl, we were hearing Music Box. really love this score technically it's kind of a repeat because this is the exact same like music as Helen's theme which we'll hear a little later only this one is composed to sound like a music box and so it's actually played on a chalice which is spelled like Celeste uh, this is a member of the keyboard family and it kind of looks like a small piano but the sound is very different. The difference between a chalice and a piano is that the piano sound comes from the hammers hitting the strings, but a chalice gets its sound from hammers hitting little metal bars. So it is kind of like a music box. Okay, that's cool. Yeah. And so that's why, that's kind of where it gets its sound. And I actually really love that sound um, because I think that it really adds kind of a, an innocence and a fragility to this track uh, because it seems so harmless to tell this story to someone and to pass it on and pass it on. 
But with each passing tale, the legend just grows larger and stronger and the believers are growing too. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I feel like it's a very childlike thing to sit around with your friend and tell stories that you heard and creep each other out. And, and so there's a really childlike elegance to this track. Many times Candyman refers to his legend as a story people will tell their children at bedtime. Throughout the movie, Candyman refers to like, become a legend with me and they'll tell stories about us to children to put them to sleep. And so, you know, urban legends are kind of like lullabies for adults. You know, the scary story you tell at night before you go to sleep and turn out the light and stuff like that. So it really does start off the story like in a really kind of innocent way, like we went from that really piercing sound in the beginning to like this really gentle, kind of happy-ish, you know, delightful sound in contrast. Yeah. And it, you know, it kind of sounds very light-footed and twinkling. And in that same vein, one of the more popular composers to use a chalice for his work was Tchaikovsky, who we all know. The most famous piece ever written on a chalice was the Dance of the Sugar Plum Fairy. Oh, wow. Same instrument. You know you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, so cool. Yeah. So I had to choose this one. I like it. I like that it's intriguing, like a fairy tale. Yeah. And it plays during a very dark story. And it's just, you know, kind of reminds you of being around the campfire with your friends. <laughs> I love that it also shows the diversity of the instrument. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I like, you know, they could have gone with a piano, you know, but they went with something a little different. And I can appreciate like, just kind of taking it a different direction, because I think it sounds so much better. uh, And it makes a much more powerful statement on a much more gentle sounding instrument. Mm -hmm. Agreed. So excited to hear this. After Helen hears the story, she, uh, her and her friend Bernadette are actually collecting information from students to write a thesis about urban legends. Helen is married. She has a husband named Trevor who's kind of a dick, and he's probably cheating on her with a student. Um, and so at one point, Helen is kind of typing up her research, and she is listening back to her recording. And a custodian overhears that on the recording, they're talking about Candyman. And so the custodian and her coworker friends are both older black women and they know all about Candyman. And so they come in and Helen asks about it and they're like, yeah, there was a girl who uh, her name was Ruthie Jean and she heard a noise and there was some banging and smashing. She called 911 and she said there was someone was coming through the walls, but they didn't believe her. So she called again. And they still didn't believe her. And then when they finally did check, she was dead. And Helen was like, oh, well, how did she die? And the woman was like, no, she was killed with a hook. Mm-mm. And she, like, motions from her, you know, groin up to, her, like, her throat. Just, like, slit all the way up. Ugh. And, yeah. And then the other custodian is like, yeah, that's true. I read it in the papers. Candyman killed her. Damn. Yeah. Um, And so I'm actually going to, there's actually a really fantastic article on the Chicago Reader about the real life murder of Ruthie Mae McCoy, who I believe is very heavily referenced and based in who this character is based on. Ruthie Mae McCoy is a woman who lived in Chicago. She lived in the Chicago Housing Authority Project. She was mentally ill. 
but she was trying to get out of public housing. And her building was dark, and it had malfunctioning elevators and drug addicts. And one day she called 911 because they were breaking through her mirror, and they didn't believe her. They put it down as like a dispute with a neighbor as opposed to a break-in, so the cops didn't go right away. And they didn't want to break down the door the second day. And on the third day, they went in and they found her dead. Oh, no. And it's a really, it's a really sad story. But if you go back and read it. And that's true. It's very true. Yeah. And if you go back and read it, you will see so many things have not changed one bit. That makes me so upset. So, yeah. Very unfortunate. But uh, it is a very fantastic, very informative. It's a little lengthy, guys, but I think it's worth every moment to sit down and read it. You know, it's a part of Chicago history, but this this was a real-life event that did inspire some of, the, uh, some of the starting events in this film. So I will link that on the blog. I do recommend reading it. Um, it's very informative, and I think it's important that everyone knows how that went because it was sad and it, stuff like that is not okay and needs to change and we need to be aware it of it still mistakes. happens and that's why it's so sad exactly exactly that's why it's so unfortunate to go back and this fucking article is from the early 90s and this shit is still relevant today like where's our growth guys uh, it's insane it's insane guys but any hooters. I don't want to, <laughs> I can rant about societal issues all day, guys, but we're going to talk about soundtracks today. I'm so excited <laughs> for you to link that on there. Thank you for doing that, Misa. Indeed, indeed. I definitely want everyone to read it because it's just, a, it's a really great article and all the people who worked on it did a, an amazing job doing research because it's fantastic. Um, so moving on. So we've met the custodians and they've told their version of Candyman so by now we've heard a couple different versions of Candyman and Helen's getting information from various people and so now we go into a new scene where Helen is reading articles about it in the library and we're hearing another amazing piece by Philip Glass and this one is Helen's theme. So Helen is just scrolling through a bunch of archived newspaper articles about Ruthie Jean and some of the murders that have happened at Cabrini Green. And, you know, she sees headlines that say things like unsolved murders, death toll rises, 21 brutal deaths, serial killer still at large, cause of death, what killed Ruthie Jean? And so, you know, she's kind of going through all this and she's kind of, she's noticing like the crime rate and, and all the crime happening in the black communities of Chicago are a lot of the crimes that people are attributing to this mythical figure that they call Candyman. Mm-hmm. And to Helen, who is a white woman who, who doesn't, you know, know the community firsthand, who hasn't seen anything with her own eyes, she's of course she's completely skeptical this isn't possible she's she's very much kind of in her head she she's in the real world and she knows that you know stuff like this doesn't exist right right so throughout the whole time she's researching this and she's also showing Bernadette some of the articles that she printed out about Cabrini Green we are hearing the score Helen's theme 
this theme kind of has a touch of sadness in it. I feel like there's a real hint of loneliness in this song, which I think perfectly describes Helen, because we see how lacking her husband is as far as affection and keeping promises and just overall kind of being a good person, because we can already tell he's kind of a shitty guy. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it's quite epic. And even in the original story, The Forbidden by Clive Barker, there are underlying themes about how Helen was in such an unhappy marriage that she sought out something else, something exciting. And that's how she stumbled upon Candyman. So I feel like those undertones remain in the film, even though they're not like direct. I do feel like Helen realizes that her marriage isn't 100% great and it could be better. And she puts in her effort, but, you know, he doesn't meet her halfway. Mm. Yeah, that's hard. Yeah. Um, And so this track, Helen's Theme, I think really accentuates her curiousness. You know, it's not a malicious curiousness. She's not trying to exploit anyone. You know, it's completely innocent. She's, She's genuinely intrigued. She has no ill intentions. You know, she's approaching her subjects with a gentle understanding and compassion. But just her as a human being, her outside of the thesis, her as a resident of Chicago, she really doesn't think any of this is true. Right. She doesn't have that exposure. So her and Bernadette are talking about Chicago, and this is when we kind of get some more of those societal issues popping up because they talk about how Chicago city officials kind of redlined the city. Because it turns out that Helen's, like, amazing, beautiful, luxury apartment was built as a housing project. But they didn't want housing project residents living on this particular part of the city. So they dressed up the building and they sold the lot as condos so that they could separate the ghetto from Mm. everyone else. Yeah, that's what they did in cities. It's cheaper to build them up. Yep, and that's what they still do today. So, again, a lot of these things are very, very significant to this day because they're still going on. Bernadette and Helen decide that they're going to go to Cabrini Green, that they want to research it for themselves. They want to see it for themselves. And so as they're driving to Cabrini Green, which is the area where everything is supposedly going down, we do hear the Cabrini Green track again. But as they're driving, Bernadette is completely paranoid. She's got like a fucking, she's got a taser and I think she's got some mace and like she's ready to fucking, she's she's going to defend herself if she has to, right? Right. And so Helen is just like, you're trying to scare me. She's like, no, Helen, like these people are dangerous. There's drug dealers, babies get thrown out of windows, which is true. Back in the day when Cabrini Green was actually a, a, an area before they tore it down, there were stories about babies being thrown from windows. Wow. And that's not even the worst of it. They get to Cabrini Green and, you know, they're met with a bunch of gang members and stuff like that. And they're, Helen's taking pictures and Helen pisses me off with her fucking camera because mind you, this is the 90s. She's just like photographing every little thing. And she's shooting with film guys, which means she is limited She can't just, like, put in a memory card and shoot a thousand photos. No, she's got maybe 32 a roll, and she's not using them wisely. It annoys me. It annoys me when she's taking photos because it's like, why aren't you looking around first, and then you choose what you take pictures of? But anyway, so they're kind of discovering Cabrini Green, and they find the apartment that Ruthie Jean was killed in, and it's completely derelict. 
And so Helen goes in to take pictures and she finds like a really creepy Candyman mural. And then she runs out of film because she didn't use it right because she's a dumbass. And then Anne-Marie, who lives next door, actually finds them. And she calls them out for being like, you're not supposed to be here. This isn't your place. And you can't be looking around and stuff like that. And then that's when they meet Anne-Marie's little boy, who's a baby named Anthony. And Anne-Marie is actually, she's got her shit together. She's not on drugs. She's not a gangster. Like, she looks like she works as a nurse, possibly a waitress. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, she looks like a responsible, like, She's got her head on right. She she doesn't want to stay in the projects forever. Like, she even tells them, like, we're not all, like, the assholes downstairs. Right. But unfortunately, she doesn't have that white privilege. And then she ends up telling Helen and Bernadette that she heard Ruthie Jean get murdered. She heard her through the walls and that nobody came. And she just heard screaming and nobody came. And then she says, like, well, they're never going to find him. And Helen says, Who? And Anne-Marie says, Candyman. Ugh, chills. And then, (laughs) yeah. Um, So we do get a little bit of a backstory about Candyman. So apparently, uh, the Candyman legend started 1890. Candyman was the son of a slave. His father came into money when he was able to invent a device to mass-produce shoes after the Civil War. Candyman was well-educated, and he grew up in a good society. He was an artist. And wealthy people with status would hire him for portraits. And one day he was hired by a landowner to paint his daughter in all her virginal beauty. And Candyman and the girl fell in love. And she got pregnant. And so the father paid people to chase Candyman through the town and to Cabrini Green, where they sawed his right hand off with a rusty blade. There was an apiary nearby with dozens of hives filled with bees. They smashed the hives, stole the honeycomb, and smeared it all over Candyman's body, and he was stung to death. And later, they burned his body on a giant pyre and scattered his ashes over Caprini Green. So, so sad. It is tragic what happened to Candyman. He He wasn't a bad man. He was done wrong. He was done wrong, and now he just kind of wants to extract revenge, and I can't really blame him. (laughs) You can. Absolutely not. We get a little further into the movie, and it takes takes Candyman about 45 minutes to show up, guys. (laughs) Um, But Helen does have a run-in with a man who has – he's been using the name Candyman, and he's been terrorizing Cabrini Green – but she ends up, you know, getting him arrested and she's able to pick him out of a lineup. So now she thinks that everything is going to be okay. And the Candyman legend is completely dispelled because the man who was using his name is now in jail and it's going to be okay, right? Wrong. Right. Wrong. <laughs> exactly. One day she's going to her car and she hears someone say, Helen. And I mean, he doesn't say it like that. He's more like, Helen. Yeah, I was going to say, you said it like, oh, yeah? Huh? <laughs> Helen, hey, girl. <laughs> Long time no see. No, that's not how it happened. <laughs> he, he is in the parking garage stalking her, and we just hear, Helen. And I'm sorry, guys. I have to talk about this really fast. <laughs> I am glad that I waited to see Candyman. But I'm a little upset that I was a Modern Family fan first. (laughs) 
Oh my god. This scene reminds me of an episode of Modern Family. I hope you've seen this one, Frankie. Cause like Candyman kind of sounds kind of throaty. He sounds like his throat's a little dry. He's like, Ellen, like that. And it just reminds me of this episode of Modern Family where like Cam and Mitch are trying to get to like, I don't know, I think they're trying to get to a birthday dinner or something. And they come across this old man. And he's on the second floor of like a shopping center and he's trying to call down to the woman on the first floor who is also really old. And he's like, <laughs> and it turns out that the other one's married, right? Like it's like love, love with long yes! gone. And she's yes! like, I've been married to this. Oh my God. Yes. And then they're both like, oh my God, how romantic. And then it turns out it is not romantic. Dude. But <laughs> Do you remember when I just love when he's trying to call her because he's like he's cupping his hands over his mouth and he's still like Helen. <laughs> <laughs> and then like they have to like Cam's like, oh, give him your phone, I'll give her my phone. And then the old man drops Mitch's phone and yeah. it breaks. <laughs> and he's like, it's it's okay. It's the love. I'm sorry, guys. I had to mention that. That shit just cracked me up. So Too funny. So <laughs> Candyman's calling her name. Candyman appears. Fuck yeah. Tony Todd. Finally on screen. Mm, mm, mm. Tony Todd. Can we talk about Tony Todd? He's really, really quite handsome. He is so handsome. And he is, mm, he's another one who's like fine wine. Like he is aging so gracefully i just think he is he is such i can't even say good i i I don't even know where to start he's so handsome he's so fucking good he's just amazing in everything no matter how big or small his role is no matter how long it takes him to appear on screen he's just so captivating that voice those eyes that face his build that's how you really feel dude tony todd is the shit he is yeah it does it doesn't seem like it takes that long for him to come on screen though i know you said like it takes like da, 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 but it, it doesn't feel that long right exactly and i think i think that's a testament to a tony todd's presence and b how alive the legend already was before we even saw him like so many people talk about Candyman, and so many people have their stories about Candyman, and they say Candyman the way they say Candyman. You know, like he's already alive. Every time they mention him, he's already there. Yeah. You know. So another reason why I love this score is because I feel like the music really kind of uh, hints at Candyman being everywhere. Like Candyman is always there. He's just kind of waiting to be summoned. Exactly. Like, always lurking in the dark. Yes. Um, So Candyman does appear. He is styling and profiling. He's got boots. He's got this fur trim coat. He's looking good. So he approaches Helen. And she's like, do I know you? He's like, no, but you doubted me. And he tells her that you were not content with the story. So I was obliged to come. Be my victim. I'm the writing on the wall. The whisper in the classroom. Without these things, I am nothing. So now I must shed innocent blood. And so she blacks out completely. And when she wakes up, she's covered in blood. And this is where my clue is from. Yes. She grabs the cleaver off the floor because she's an idiot. 
And it turns out that Anne-Marie's baby has been kidnapped and Anne-Marie's dog is dead. Anne-Marie is hysterical and she attacks Helen and Helen tries to restrain her, but then the cops show up. They catch Helen in a very compromising situation and they arrest her. Of course. I mean, I would want her arrested too if I was in that situation. Yeah, for sure. So we get a little further into the movie. By now, Helen has been in a mental health facility for about a month and she did not realize that it was already a month and on the first day that she got there she was having visions of Candyman, and she was really freaked out but on the surveillance camera there's nothing there so they think that she's legitimately crazy she escapes from the hospital she goes home she's hoping trevor's there but he is there with his college student that he's now dating and she's painting the apartment pink gross i know and she's just fucking stupid and so helen is like there and they're scared to shit of helen because again they think she's crazy you know they think she's a murderer because after she got arrested for Anne marie and supposedly kidnapping the kid and killing the dog she was let out on bail and then bernadette ended up getting killed by Candyman. so that sucked so everyone thinks that Helen is this terrible murderer and they don't want to go near her and Trevor's scared of her and so Helen, this is when Helen realizes that she's really lost everything. She can't go anywhere. She's wanted. She has no husband. She has no home. Everyone thinks she's crazy. She has lost everything. And this is when she kind of hears Candyman and he tells her that she has nothing left but his desire for her. And so Helen decides that she needs to go back to Cabrini Green. And so this is when we get another amazing Philip Glass piece. And this is called Return to Cabrini. So the piano comes in and Helen is walking around in Candyman's lair. And she finds him sleeping, which I actually like some some horror fans are like, oh, that's weird. Why does a ghost need to sleep? Why does Candyman need to sleep? But I'm like, can you guys fuck off? This is kind of precious. Like he's recharging. Hello. Thank you. Um, like let's humanize murderers. <laughs> thank you. Ghouls need rest. You know, like it can't be easy to be gutting people guys right i mean that's a big workout cardio <laughs> yeah upper arm strength my goodness i'm sorry we're not all athletes <laughs> i know right it must be nice to have two hands <laughs> anyway so she finds him sleeping and she's she's found a hook kind of sitting around so she like she raises it up over his head because she's gonna stab him and kill him but he opens his eyes and then she stabs him anyway but he pulls it out of his shoulder because he's just a fucking boss yeah (laughs) and then he's like helen you came to me and so he makes her a deal and he says like if you surrender to me the baby will go unharmed And so the camera does this really beautiful thing, and the score is still playing. The camera just circles them over and over and over. And it's just, I love this shot because it really isolates Helen and the Candyman. So it's kind of like they're in their own little world. 
And so he takes her up into his arms, which, uh, swoon. Like, I know he's supposed to be a villain. I know he's supposed to be scary. But, I mean, Virginia Madsen got to, like, get carried around by Tony Todd in his arms. Like, swoon? Yeah. Right? That's good stuff. That's good mm. stuff. Yes. And he's so tall. <laughs> I'm sorry, guys. He's hilarious. It's hot in here. Is it hot in here? Bless you, my friend. I'm wearing fuzzy socks and fuzzy pants. Oh, see, that's why. It's the fuzziness. Ooh, so fuzzy on the inside, too. Anyway, um, so uh, he picks her up in his arm. It's like she tells him that she's scared because like, she's obviously going to surrender to him so that the baby can live, so that Anne-Marie can get her child back. But at the same time, even though she's willing to do this, Helen is terrified, and she tells him that she's scared, and he says, the pain, I can assure you, will be exquisite. And he tells her that their names will be written on a thousand walls. And so he lays her down, and when she looks at her hand, it's covered in bees. And this is the part that terrifies me. Oh, really? Okay, okay. I hate, like, that just, ugh. So he opens his coat to reveal his rib cage, and his rib cage is completely exposed. He looks like he was on an autopsy table, and they just kind of split and peeled his skin off of his chest. And so, like, his rib bones are protruding out of his coat, and housed inside of his rib cage are hundreds and hundreds of buzzing bees and then he opens his mouth and it's also filled with bees and they all start to fly out and hover over Candyman and Helen and then he leans down and he gives Helen a kiss when he pulls away from her they're all over her face right yes I agree and so Helen wakes up and that's when she realizes that she's alone Candyman is gone all the bees are gone and she has no idea what happened so this track that played was Return to Cabrini and I love this track it's so hypnotizing this sounds kind of like we're entering a very different Cabrini Green than we did before. Mm -hmm. You know, before when we were at Cabrini Green with her, it was daylight and there was still at least a little bit of sun shining through the windows and, you know, the holes in the walls and shit. But now it's completely dark outside. Now it's nighttime. And like with this, the environment has seemingly changed completely. I can't wait to hear this. It's going to be so badass. Another reason why I love this track is because it's, it's also very seductive. And it's very romantic. And if you think mm -hmm. about it, Candyman is kind of a very romantic figure in the same way that Edgar Allan Poe wrote his characters to be, like, morbidly romantic. Oh. Would you agree? I like that comparison. I definitely would. I'm loving that comparison, actually. I can see Candyman being a story that Edgar Allan Poe would have written. Yeah. 
I bet Clive would be really happy to hear you say that. It all stems from a love story, you know, and and it, it really is a tragedy. Like Candyman was a deep, true love, a deep, true love story that ended in horror. I completely agree. And so that's that's one of the reasons why I love this scene is because, you know, we're seeing that softer side of Candyman. Like, yes, he's threatening. Yes, he's foreboding. But now, like, we see him kind of being a little more gentle because Helen is willing to be his victim and to become a story with him, to become one of Candyman's stories and to live on with him through story. There's a real loveliness in the macabre. I think that's why couples love Morticia and Gomez Adams and the like. Oh, yes. Because their passion transcends their time as living human beings. And their love carries on into their death, into their afterlife. You know, love is eternal and love lives after death. Beautifully said. It is open to interpretation, but I've always understood it as Helen either looked exactly like or was a reincarnated version of the girl that Candyman fell in love with. Oh, good theory. Yes. That's why he was so fixated on her because it was kind of like his way of seeing like a second chance with this woman and this time like she would be immortalized with him. Yes. That's actually beautiful. Yeah. So that's that's another reason why I think like I can't hate Candyman. I in a way I'm not scared of Candyman cuz Candyman is actually like he's a good guy under all the bees and the fur and the <laughs> so right after helen wakes up and she realizes she's alone again and all the bees are gone even Candyman is gone and he has taken the child she walks around his lair and she finds that there is a mural amongst others and in this particular mural there's a woman who looks a lot like her blue eyes curly blonde hair pale white skin and then we hear Candyman's voice, and he says, It was always you, Helen. And that's the name of the score that plays during this scene. It was always you, Helen. So then from where she is, she can hear the baby start to cry. And then she realizes that the baby is in the giant trash pile outside of the apartment building, which the residents were building up for a bonfire. So she scales the pile of just like trash and tables and chairs and all the discarded things that they're going to go ahead and burn for the bonfire. She climbs everything and the baby is somewhere inside crying. And as she's climbing in to save the baby, the boy, Jake, who helped her earlier in the movie, he wakes up and he sees only her hook because she still has the hook that she was using as a weapon. And all he sees is the hook disappear into the pile of garbage. And he immediately thinks that Candyman is in there. And so he rallies up the residents of Cabrini Green and they all grab their cans of gas because they have cans of gas in their apartments. And they all head out in hordes and just groups of them. All of them are coming down and they are going to burn Candyman in the bonfire. 
So Helen is crawling through all the rubble, and she can still hear the baby, and she's getting closer and closer. Meanwhile, people on the outside, who somehow can't hear the baby, are splashing lighter fluid onto the pile of garbage, because they're going to light this shit on fire. And so Helen finally makes it to the baby, and she takes him into her arms, and, you know, there's this moment of relief, like, oh, it's going to be okay. And just to add to the tension, the crowd outside gets bigger and bigger because the word of mouth is going around that Candyman is in there and they're going to kill Candyman. And all of a sudden, Candyman pops up behind Helen. And he takes her into his arms and he says, I knew you'd come. When this track first starts, it sounds a lot like Helen's theme. And then it does start to change as the track goes on because the vocals come in and this track kind of takes a different tone in a different direction. It sounds a lot more like redemption. There's kind of this heroic air to the sounds that are emitting from the choir. And because this is Helen's chance, like this is her trying to save the baby and trying to save herself. And just like Helen's theme has those hints of curiosity, this one is very hopeful because we think it's going to be okay. We think the heroine is going to come out on top, but Candyman wants her for himself. So when she finally gets to the baby, Candyman tries to sacrifice all of them. And he's like, no, we're all going to live on together. And she's like trying to fight him off. She eventually is able to stab him with a flaming stake. And then she tries to take off with the baby. And he just starts screaming. And Candyman is basically like trapped and being burned and burned to death all over again. And he's screaming for her, come back to me. And she's just crawling away, saving the day. She's a hero. She's saving this baby. She's going to get out alive or dead. But the baby is going to live if she has anything to say about it. And sure enough, Helen escapes the fire with the baby. And we find out in the next scene that Helen has succumbed to her injuries. And we see her funeral. And her shitty husband brought his new girlfriend because that's cool. No. As the funeral is about to conclude, all the residents of Cabrini Green show up to pay their respects to Helen. And the little boy Jake, he brings Candyman's hook and he tosses it into the grave with her. This is actually, I, I love the ending because the husband is miserable because Helen is dead and he's now living with this college student girlfriend who we can tell he's kind of getting tired of already yeah she's trying to get him to eat and he's like no I'm okay and he's like in the he's locked himself in the bathroom and he's just sitting there and he starts crying in front of the mirror and he says Helen's name five times and then he turns out the light and she appears behind him and it is so chilling because there's like a strobe light effect going on and he's terrified and she just looks at him and says what's the matter Trevor scared of something and she has Candyman's hook and she guts her husband from his groin to his 
gullet. And his girlfriend finds him dead in the tub. Uh, that's probably like the best payback scene ever. Such a good ending. We cut to Cabrini Green and we see we're back in Candyman's lair. And there's a beautiful new mural on the wall. And it looks exactly like Helen. And she looks like an angel. And she's surrounded by flames. And she's now a part of Candyman mythology forever. The end. So good. I love this film. A few fun facts before I wrap up. Philip Glass, who is the composer of the score for Candyman, he actually really liked the urban legend concept when he first heard about it. And so he wrote the demo after he saw an early sample of the film. And the editors already had his music on hand when they were editing the film, which normally doesn't happen. Normally they edit the film first and then you get the score. But in this case, they already had the music on them. So they said that that really helped when they were editing. Here's kind of a, an interesting note. Philip Glass did not know that he was doing the score for a horror film. He thought he was doing the score for a very artsy, independent, kind of low-budget like take on The Forbidden by Clive Barker. And so that's part of it. That's another big reason why this score doesn't sound like your typical horror movie score, because he actually didn't write it with a horror movie in mind. And so it wasn't until he saw a screening with an audience at a theater in New York, and he was shocked to see that the audience was really loud and that they were responding to the screen and yelling at the characters. And that's when he realized that he had scored a horror movie. Wow. And he was not happy about it. <gasps> oh, he wasn't. He was not thrilled. Yeah, this was a surprise to him. He did not. Candyman was not the movie he thought it was. Wow. Mm -hmm. I'm shocked. Yeah, so was he. Um, here's an interesting fact. In the original script for Candyman, you had to say his name 13 times in front of a mirror. Oh, that's way too much. Who has time for that? Yeah, exactly. So that's why they cut it down to five. Clive Barker's short story does take place in Liverpool, but Bernard Rose chose to change the setting to Chicago because he felt like the societal themes would kind of create a stronger impact if it was set in America. Yeah. And so that's part of the reason why the bonfire trash pile is so out of place. Because the bonfire is a thing in the story, which again takes place in Liverpool. The purpose of the bonfire would have been for Guy Fawkes Day, but like we don't do that in America. So in the movie, they just say it's for a bonfire. Oh, okay. And that's Guy Fawkes Day? Yeah. I don't even yeah. know what that is. You know the mask from V for Vendetta? Guy Fawkes. Oh, duh. Okay. Yes. Yeah, sorry. Before Virginia Madsen was cast as Helen, it was very possible that the role of Helen would have gone to a then-unknown Sandra Bullock. <gasps> wow. Oh, my God. Imagine okay, that. but don't get me wrong. I'm kind of loving that. 
I'm intrigued to see, like, I, that would have been an interesting... There's probably a, an alternate timeline somewhere where Sandra Bullock was in Candyman. That is so cool. It would be interesting for sure. Oh, this was cool. Uh, some of the commentary that Bernard Rose said, Bernard Rose again being the director, he says that it's hard to scare people with things that they're not scared of, but people are always afraid of the wrong part of town. Cabrini Green in many ways was the equivalent to a haunted house because, quote, irrational fear is the very fundamental building block of racism. He also said, exploring the dark heart of American history, which is a country built on slavery, America was built on stolen land and built by slaves. Candyman is a horror story based on true horror that the black community has had to endure. And even Casey Lemons, who plays Bernadette, she also said that, you know, these are ancestral traumas. She says, we are haunted by our past entanglements. We are breeding monsters by our past hatred. She says, Candyman came of racism. We are responsible for Candyman. We are responsible for the monsters we create. Another thing that Bernard Rose said is that the difference between a horror film and an action film is that in an action film, it's all about who you sympathize with. In an action film, you sympathize with the killer. That's why I don't make action films, because they're immoral as far as I'm concerned. In action films, it's all about how many people you can kill, how many bad guys, but who designates who's good and who's bad. He says that action films are just an excuse to help gun manufacturers show off. He says that the difference between action and horror is that in horror, you sympathize with the victim. In horror, it's all about waiting to be killed and trying to stay alive, which is a much more human objective. Dang. He sounds like someone I would love to go have, like, coffee with. Virginia Madsen was hypnotized and put into a trance for certain scenes in Candyman. In real life? Yep. Bernard Rose made everyone stand off to the side, very quiet, and then he spent 20 minutes talking quietly to her and giving her a keyword that would trigger her into her trance. And then he would whisper, roll camera, and no one would say action, and then they would just film her as she was just staring off into space. I'm terrified. She eventually told him, yeah, like she, she said that she didn't like it anymore and she told him to stop. But if you go back and watch, like there are a few scenes where like it's just Helen filling the frame and she's hypnotized in those scenes. Oh my God, I could not. Mm -hmm. I could not. Mm -mm. In an alternate ending, Helen is shown in the Candyman's lair. She's in a giant beehive and she's covered with bees and then she opens her eyes and the film ends. They did film this ending, and Virginia Madsen was covered in 3,000 bees for this, and she's allergic. Oh my god, how did they do that? So to keep the bees where they wanted them on the actors, Virginia Madsen was dabbed with a queen bee pheromone, and that made the bees fall in love with her because they thought she was their queen. Okay, and they would never hurt their queen. Right, they're supposed to protect them. And on top of that, all of these bees were less than 24 hours old because they're less likely to sting when they're less than 24 hours old. Mm -hmm. The man, the beekeeper, Norman Gary, actually built an apiary for the bees on the roof of the studio 
And so they were just using newborn bees for the scenes. They used over 200,000. Despite all the precautions that they took while filming, Tony Todd, unfortunately, did get stung by bees. In an interview with Entertainment Weekly, he says that he was stung a total of 23 times. And because he had negotiated a certain clause in his contract for this film, he was paid $1,000 for every bee sting, just for the bee stings he received on set. He was paid $23,000. If you are a crime junkie like me and Frankie, I think you'll already know this bit of info, but I felt like it was important to mention. There are two real-life separate events that have prompted the public to speak of someone that they call the Candyman. One incident occurred in Houston, Texas. His name was Dean Coral. He grew up in Vider, Texas, and he was a serial killer who raped and murdered boys in the early 70s. His mother and stepfather owned a candy factory, and they moved from Vider, Texas to the Houston Heights. They moved their shop there, and Dean lived in the apartment above it. The mom and the stepfather divorced, and the mom started her own coral candy company. They moved to 22nd Street, across from Helms Elementary School, which is still there. From there, Dean began to give free candy to the local children at the school. And over the span of three years, he killed a minimum of 28 people, all of whom were males, 13 to 20 years old. They'd been abducted from Houston Heights, which at the time kind of made me laugh, was a low-income neighborhood. He had two teenage boys who helped him lure his victims. The victims would be kidnapped, drugged, stripped naked, tied down, sexually assaulted, beaten, tortured for days on end, and then eventually killed. Dean was known to force the captives to write or call home with explanations for their absence. So that's horrifying. And then the other incident that occurred was also in Texas. Uh, this one happened in Pasadena. This one involved a man named Ronald Clark O'Brien. This one I think a lot more people have heard of. He, this was Halloween 1974. He gave his son, as well as other children in the neighborhood, a pixie stick with cyanide in it. Mm -hmm. Just before this, Ronald had taken out a $40,000 life insurance policy on his children, $20K for each. And his son, Timothy, ate the pixie stick and he died. This crime earned him the nickname Candyman. So I thought it was interesting that they both happened in Texas. Yeah. And uh, fairly close. Yeah. <laughs> To where we are. Vider's crazy, yeah. Vider's like the KKK town, right? Yes. The don't get caught around here at sundown town. Yeah, or you'll be lynched and dragged. Yeah, exactly. It's a really racist town, guys. Don't ever go through it. <laughs> ever. But yeah, with that, that was Candyman. That's amazing, Nisa. Thank you. I'm sorry that took so long, guys. I hope you're still with me. <laughs> it was worth it. Worth, worth, worth it. It's such an amazing movie, and I love it to death, and I really enjoyed watching it over and over and over again, and I love the score. I love the story. I have not seen parts two and three. I know they are lesser films mm -hmm. than this one, uh, but I, you know, for the sake of, 
I want to indulge as much of it as I can. I absolutely will watch them someday. And I'm absolutely looking forward to the direct sequel coming out next I'm year. I'm so excited. So this will be the fourth and last installment then that Jordan is covering, correct or no? It is the fourth installment of the Candyman film series, but it is considered a direct sequel. So you're going to ignore parts two and three. And you're going to kind of, kind of like Halloween, you're going to pretend this came right after the first one. Mm, Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. So, um, yeah, so it'll be fun. It'll be interesting to see Anne-Marie come back. She looks amazing in the trailer. She hasn't aged a day. And then the the main character is Anthony, the baby that Helen saved at the end of this film. So I love that they're continuing with those characters. I love that we're going to revisit them and see what happened to them because he's obviously so connected to Candyman, and I'm so excited to see where it goes. I am so excited. And it should be coming out soon. It got postponed because of COVID. It's going to be fun. Anything Jordan Peele touches, I'm ready. Oh, I'm ready. Yes, it's amazing. It's amazing. And of course, Tony Todd is coming back as Candyman. <laughs> Any Hooters, guys, that was my movie. Thanks for sticking with me. And now it's Frankie's turn. I'm so excited. I, oh, I'm kind of nervous. <laughs> Aw, of course, of course. I know this is one of your absolute favorite movies of all time I know this movie means so much to you so I can understand the pressure that you're putting on yourself yeah oh yes okay so it is my favorite and I went a little bit different with the songs because this movie um first of all has a huge cult following basically and um it does have a score as well as some just regular songs as you know, if you listen to our Midsummer, um, and oh, I forgot what you did during that time. Midsummer and um, what's it called? The Strangers Two, not The Strangers Two. That's what yeah, I call that was it. it. The Strangers, The Strangers Two. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I call it, but that's not the real title. <laughs> you guys know what I mean. Um, when we covered that one, that was my first score ever, and I told Misa like I just am not ready to do another score. That was a lot of research. It takes a lot. It takes a lot. And I mean, as you guys know, Misa just covered Handyman and that had an epic score. So I just, I don't know how she does it. <laughs> You're amazing, Misa. I'm not ready to do um, back-to-back scores though. So I, I'm a little nervous because I did go this route. I'm not covering a whole lot of songs in this movie. Um, but I mean, there's very few people who haven't seen this movie that I know of, at least, at least in passing, you know, while crafting and drinking wine, um, at the very least. And Lisa. Of course, of <laughs> course. Yes, yes. I've been there. Yeah, you've been there. Uh, it's a personal experience. Um, or you have those weird freaks who like literally watch this movie all year because you don't get tired of it at all. And it's not just a spooky season movie. So um, without further ado, I am covering the 1993 dark comedy Disney horror Hocus Pocus. Yay! Oh my gosh, everyone out there is finally, 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 <laughs> finally. I know, right? Ah, we're so excited. We're so excited. Um, so I I love this movie. My sister loves this movie. 
like we literally quote this movie. I have all kinds of like merchandise with this quotes and shirts and I smell children and we fly and you know just like random things like that. So I'm super excited to cover this movie. But like I said, I did go a little bit different. Um, and so I do have a lot of background information though, because I wanted to make sure that I did you guys justice. So like I said, this movie did come out in 1993. It is directed by Kenny Ortega, who a lot of people know from not just Hocus Pocus, but um, High School Musical, the whole trilogies. He did direct um, one of Misa's and I, this is the first time I saw this movie was Michael Jackson's This Is It. I didn't realize he directed oh, that. That's right. So I was, I, yeah, and he did some of the choreography with Michael, like back wow. in the day. What a cool guy! I know, and I had no idea. Also, you're gonna love this because he did start choreographing before he did filmmaking. He choreographed St. Elmo's Fire, Pretty in Pink, Ferris Bueller's Day Off and Dirty Dancing. That is amazing. So this guy right? was basically getting the entire 80s to dance. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. And he's worked for tours and things like that, including Cher, um, Gloria Estefan, and Hannah Montana, as well as Michael Jackson before he passed. He's an amazing guy, and I didn't even realize he's 70. Wow. He does not look like it. Like, I want to look like him when I'm 70. He looks, <laughs> I mean, he's amazing. He's amazing. Um, and I mean, I just mentioned some of the kind of basic ones that I thought that you would be really interested in. Not only that, though, he choreographed uh, Tu Wong Fu, Thanks for Everything, Julie Newmar, which, I mean, that's huge. And he did music, he did Xanadu, like, I mean, he's done so much. And for him to do Hocus Pocus, he took it on, it took several years of writing from Neil Cuthbert and Mick Garris, and Kenny took it and made it into this movie that was going to be appropriate for Disney. And that's why we do have some of those really funny, like, choreographed moments between um, the Sanderson sisters, the way that they walk and things like that. Just those little aspects that he adds in because he sees not only the filmmaker side, but that very much like choreograph, making sure it matches the music, that kind of thing, which I think is one of the reasons why I do love this movie so much. This movie really is filled with tons of music if you look at the score and the just regular soundtrack. So just some background information on Kenny. And I mean, he's he's an awesome guy. Um, there is um, some suspects and prospects to him doing a Hocus Pocus 2, but due to COVID, that did get pushed back. So I don't know officially if that's going to come out or not, but, you know, I'm going to, you know, do an unpopular opinion, and I, I'm, I'm okay without a Hocus Pocus 2. So. Really? You're okay without a sequel? I, I am. I am. Because I think the first one is totally okay by itself. Yeah. I Yeah, I can understand. I think that, um, to me, like, this is me as an outsider opinion, because uh, Frankie and I have talked about this before. Hocus Pocus isn't my movie the way it's her movie. Mm -hmm. uh, but I can still appreciate it for the sake of it being a cult classic. But 
like to me, I feel like if there's more to tell in a story, then yes, do a sequel. But Hocus Pocus actually wraps things up pretty well. Yeah. And on top of that, for them to come out with a sequel at a time like this, like at, during this era where so many ideas are getting rehashed, this doesn't feel like it's an organic Hocus Pocus sequel. It feels like a cash grab. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. So for me, it just it, I, it's just unnecessary. Like, you know... Um, I would rather them do exactly what they did, um, and they actually did a Hocus Pocus Halloween takeover this year um, on Halloween 2020 instead of doing, like, a second one. So they did kind of a live revival. Um, It was a very short one-hour broadcast. You had to pay to see it. All the proceeds went to the New York Restoration Project, and they had the original Sanderson sisters, of course. who are played by Bette Midler, Sarah Jessica Parker, Kathy Najimy. And then they also included the entire rest of the cast and invited tons of other actresses and singers and actors and just notable people. And they raised tons of money for the New York Restoration Project. And I would much rather them do that than do a sequel, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah that's awesome. And that's because that's for a good cause. Absolutely, absolutely. Like Misa and I have both said, this is very much a cult movie. It did not start out that way, though. Um, it actually did not do as well as they thought it would do. And that's kind of because of when they released it. Even though this movie is very much a Halloween movie, it was released in the summer of 1993. And so it came in fourth that opening week, only grossing $8.1 million, which was less than what it was projected to hit um and that may be because of the other movies that were released with it which included free willy but also they just didn't i don't think they planned it well to release hocus pocus in the summer what they thought would happen i guess is that um you know summer kids would go see more movies yada 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 that's not what happened though um so you know, it it didn't do well when it first came out. It did not reach the expected projected money, um, you know, but it went on to become that cult classic with the help of, you know, being a regular Disney Halloween movie on the Disney Channel, on, you know, channels like Freeform, things like that. And then thanks to, you know, Hot Topic and the Disney Store and Box Lunch, Um, even Target, Walmart, all the other stores, they've kind of helped push Hocus Pocus back up to the top because they've revived, you know, all the merch. Yeah, all the nostalgia. Yeah, exactly. This movie, like I kind of already touched base on, does have some very notable cast as well as some newcomers. Um, Bette Midler plays Winnie Sanderson, one of our witches. Sarah Jessica Parker plays the beautiful Sarah Sanderson, the dumb and beautiful <laughs> witch sister. Mm-hmm. Then we have Kathy Najimi, and I feel like I'm saying her last name wrong. I always say it wrong. Um, but I think that's right, right, Najimi? I just never Honestly, know. Honestly, I've never had to say it out loud. She's in, like, so many movies, but <laughs> I know. I've know i never had to actually say her no. name. I think you're saying it right. Okay. Okay, if I'm mispronouncing it, I'm sorry. Um, she plays Mary, uh, who's kind of the ugly sister, if you will. I mean, I don't know how you classify her. 
She's the ugly, funny one. That, then that would just make her the funny one. <laughs> well, her face has got this thing going on. You know what I mean? <laughs> she's got this. She's got this kind of like side lip curl thing that um, is very Kathy. <laughs> right, right, right. She's, she's so beautiful in real life. She decided to make her little like side curl. So yeah, then we have um, Omri Katz who plays Max Dennison, which is our one of our main characters. His sister, played by Thora Birch. We have uh, Vanessa Shaw. We have um, Sean Murray as Thackeray Binks, which is one of our um, main characters who turns into an immortal black cat, who is then voiced by uh, Jason Marsden. Um, and there's some other, you know, smaller roles that aren't super important. Um, I do think it is important to say that uh, Penny Marshall and her husband, Gary Marshall, play Master Devil and Medusa Lady um, and kind of threaten the witches when they come That's back. That's right. He's her. the devil. <laughs> yes. Thou should not speak to Master that way. <laughs> so, um, like I said, this movie, it, when it first came out, it didn't do super great, but it did um, go on to win a couple of awards. It did win for the 1994 Saturn Award for Best Costumes. And I do think it's important to note that Bette Midler actually did help Mary E. Voigt, who did the costumes. She had a lot of say-so in the costuming. And so I feel like that award should kind of have Bette's name tied to it because she made sure that everything was on point with the um, kind of era the witches would have been in. And I think that's really important. You know, especially for these type of period. I mean, this isn't a period movie, but to have the characters who did come from a period, that is super important. Yeah, and plus all the the history majors out there who will recognize the continuity will really appreciate it. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, And then it did also win the award for um, Young Artist, and that would be for uh, Thora Birch. She won Best Youth Actress in a motion picture comedy for the 1993 Young Artist Awards, which, I mean, Thora Birch is awesome. She's so little in this movie. Oh, I know. And if you look back at interviews, um, you know, they went on to say, Penny said that she was, like, one of the most poised and, like, responsible young actresses she's he's ever worked with. So anyways, um, that covers kind of our background information. And I'm just going to go ahead and jump in to our uh, plot and synopsis. And then we'll cover our most memorable song. Um, I do want to give a side note that most of my songs actually come in the second half of the movie. So I'm probably going to do quite a bit of talking. I hope I don't bore you at first before we jump into those songs. Okay? Never. <laughs> Okay, so we open up on Halloween night in 1693 in Salem, Massachusetts, and we see Thackeray Binks kind of um, chasing after his sister after she's being whisked away by the Sanderson sisters, who are three very well-known witches, but I guess no one has yet proven that Winifred, Sarah, and Mary are witches. Um, We see them working on a spell in their cottage. Um, and they look kind of, you know, gray and aged at this point. Um, and we see Thackeray kind of watching from the distance, trying to hide 
to not be seen by the witches so that he can hopefully help his sister, Emily. They are brewing a spell in hopes to drink uh, kind of the child's youth away, I guess is what it essentially does. Um, and then they are blessed with that youth and, you know, fertility and basically immortality. And so that's what they're working on. And you do see that Emily is force fed this potion. She does die. That's when Thackeray comes out to try to save his sister, but it's a little bit too late. He ends up um, knocking over some of their stuff and there's a brawl that kind of takes place. And as this happens, they catch Thackeray and turn him into a black cat, which of course at this time, all black cats were considered absolutely evil and kind of the worst animals that were around at this time. So anyways, they, as soon as they turn Thackeray into the um, the black cat, which we I'm going to start calling him Binks just because it's easier to say than Thackeray over and over again. <laughs> we hear like this angry mob outside and they know that they have taken Emily and it's the village, you know, demanding that Winifred tells them where his son is, where his daughter is. And this is actually one of my favorite lines because as they're kind of, you know, on trial, they're standing up with the nooses around their neck. He says, where's my son, Thackeray? And she was like, Thackeray, cat's got my tongue. <laughs> just the way she says it. <laughs> It's just one of those cheesy lines that I absolutely love. And then, of course, they all start laughing. They end up calling for Winnie's spell book and, you know, curse everyone, saying that they'll be back by anyone who lights the black flame candle to resurrect them in 300 years. And then we see them hanged and we see their feet, you know, very Disney-like. We don't see the actual, you know, nooses around their necks or anything, but we do see the allusion to the fact they are being hung. And Thackeray, who is now Binks, the cat, is rubbing against his father's leg, trying to get his attention, um, only to be pushed away and told, you know, that he's a beast and a monster because black cats represent the evil witches. We then fast forward to present day, 300 years later, and we see that this is actually the story that one of our Salem teachers is telling the class on Halloween. Since we are in Salem, they are very much, you know, a part of the history of the Sanderson sisters. Everyone who lives there knows everything about the Sanderson sisters. Um, and it's not like an urban legend, like it's fact. And so we have this introduction to Max Dennison, who is kind of like scoffing at the idea that there's witches because he just moved there from California. And so he doesn't really fit in with all of the, I don't know what you call them, Salemites? What do you call people from Salem? Oh, good question. Uh, Salemites is the first thing that would come to my mind too. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> Let's just call them that. Okay. Okay. Salemites. So he's obviously from California and like he gets made fun of cause like he's in tie dye and they're like, you know, totally rad dude. Um, with your laid back lifestyle and surfer motif is what they kind of make fun of him because, you know, it's different here in Salem with all the witches and everyone who like their huge Halloween 
town, obviously. I mean, one would assume that that's what Salem's about. Um, and so he kind of calls it out and he's like, uh, Halloween's totally made up by the Candy Corporation. And he's quickly corrected by, of course, the most beautiful girl in the class, Allison, who says, you know, actually Halloween is from All Hallows Eve and like kind of educates him, whatever. He's brave, hits on her, gives her his digits, which of course start with the infamous, what are the numbers that they always start with, Nisa and Movie? Five, five, five. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Can I just say how much <laughs> Allison looks like Hillary fucking Swank? I thought it was just me. I literally brought this up today because I personally, and please don't hate me, guys. Beauty's in the eye of the beholder. I do not behold Hillary Swank. I'm sorry. She She's not my cup of tea. Okay. Okay. That's understandable. She does have some um, unique features. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I personally don't think Allison is necessarily my cup of tea. I think she was pretty for the time. Yeah. Without being. Yeah. Sorry. So, yeah. Anyways, then we see, um, you know, Max has some trouble with some of these stupid, like, we'll call them punks, but really they're just like dumbass assholes who are like wannabe gangsters in Salem um you know whatever I'm sure Salem has gangs or I, I don't know they're they're not it though I and Jay are not it so <laughs> these guys are like uh diet bullies like like they think they're saying stuff that's like funny and insulting but it's just like dude are, are you in the first grade <laughs> yeah you're lame you're lame is what it is I love how you said that they're diet bullies exactly they're bullies there's a light version <laughs> diet bully <laughs> Yeah, they, you're the diet coke of bullies. Oh. Just one calorie, not bully enough. <laughs> that is hilarious. Do you know what movie I'm quoting? Accurate. No. What is that from? Uh, uh, Austin Powers Part Two. Oh my god. <laughs> oh my god, it is. I thought it's so funny when he's like, "You're the diet coke of evil." <laughs> Oh I'm sorry. my gosh, I haven't seen Austin Powers in forever. Total segue, Angel and I were just talking about how the kids need to watch it because we love the part where they're like, oh my God, there's a giant stick. Did you get the, and then it's like the whole like um, tongue in cheek, like fill in the blanks with other words for wieners. Who wants a giant schlong? Yes. And like Johnson. Yes. <laughs> Oh, man, those movies. Yes, okay. I loved those movies. Like, what was that? Like, fifth grade? Sixth grade? Yeah, yeah. I, I Definitely elementary school for us. Yeah, yeah. Loved it. I think I think we need to introduce that to the kids for sure, for sure. They haven't seen it yet. So. so, he runs into the light bullies. And, you know, they take his shoes. He gets home. His parents are like, oh, whatever, you know. He runs upstairs. We're introduced to his youngest sister, Danny, who's like, oh, my God, you're supposed to take me trick-or-treating. And he's, like, pissed off because she's in his room. And he's like, no, do it yourself. And then, of course, he ends up taking her. They go trick-or-treating. And they run into, of course, the light bullies who are so annoying. Like, their whole little group. I'm just like, oh, my God, I'd punch you in the face. <laughs> um, and as I said, this is a huge Halloween town. So like everybody's out trick-or-treating. And I know it's so funny that I mentioned this, but I have to tell you, 
just because everything I'm watching now, like it doesn't matter what it is. I'm so stuck in this COVID mindset that I'm like, oh my God, there's so many people out with not social distancing. (laughs) (laughs) No, I totally understand. And it's, it's weird for me to watch movies. Yes. Yes. I feel the same way sometimes. Right? Yes. I'm like, wow, they're really close to each other. Germs. Exactly. I'd be like, oh, that wouldn't be able to happen today. Yes. Yes. So as I'm watching this, that's what's going through my mind. So of course they go to this like huge, beautiful house. Turns out that's Allison's house. And that's when Danny and Allison start talking about the Sanderson sisters. Turns out Allison's mom used to run the museum for the Sanderson sisters, which was actually the cottage that we were introduced to at the beginning of the movie. So Max is like, well, let's go. Since you're an expert, you know, go show us everything there. And she's like, yeah, okay. So they go, they're playing around, you know, messing around in the house, looking at the spell book, which is enclosed in glass. And everything actually looks very, you know, well conditioned to what it looked like for it to be 300 years old. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And um, we see Binks kind of off to the corner. We don't know it's Binks yet, but it's him. And he's watching them. And that's when Allison and Max are kind of talking about the black flame candle and what the uh, history behind it is and how the sister said that if a virgin lights it on Halloween, they'll come back. And he's like, well, let's light the sucker. He's like, it's just a bunch of hocus pocus. And the idiot that he is lights the candle. And of course, everything turns off. All the electricity goes off. And then bang, 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 bang. All these candles come on. Then there's Binks, who's like, well, you did it now. And then the witches appear. It's just a bunch of hocus pocus. (laughs) I love them Um, and you know they look beautiful they don't look a day older than 300 they show up where um, they're very confused for like the century that they're in they see Danny and they think that she they know she's a child but she pretends obviously that she's a witch so that they don't eat her and they are able to escape And this is when like everything starts happening right away. So Allison kind of explains what's going to happen now, because now that they're here, like they had to figure out how to get rid of them. Now they realize that Binks is who he is. He explains that he's been kind of guarding the house for 300 years, trying to save, you know, a virgin from lighting the candle. And that's kind of the big joke in this movie, which um, was kind of risque for Disney, you know, back in the day to use the word virgin over and over again. And so this is when they decide to go to the gravesite to get away from them for good because that's hollow ground and witches can't enter the gravesite. Even though the witches cannot go onto hollow ground, they're able to raise from the dead like past lovers and past people who they know to, to kind of assist in getting the spellbook back and you know, creating their potion for the whole reason why they made the curse. So then they can be immortal. And now it's up to Max and Allison and Danny, along with Binks, to stop the witches. They raise from the dead Winifred's ex-lover, who I guess slept with Sarah. And so then she sewed his mouth shut because (laughs) 
he slept with his sister because Sarah's Sarah's the whore. She's like the ditzy whore. And um, the witches are trying to figure out what to do and trying to kind of maneuver around the 90s because you have to remember, like, it's been 300 years. So there's a huge difference. I mean, you see them like Sarah, they see the road and it's black. And of course, then they're like, it looks like a black river. And um, Winifred and Mary push Sarah out onto it. And she's like, tis firm, tis firm a stone. Um, And then they see like fire trucks and they don't know how to react because they didn't have these things. Um, They see a bus. They don't know what's going on. Mary has the ability to like smell children. um, And she's super confused because, of course, everybody is in costume. And so she doesn't know what to do because she's like, I smell children. But, you know, everyone's like they look like goblins and witches and you know devils and it's just they they're very confused also so we see both of them trying to figure out like how to get to each other um because max and allison are trying to save all the children while winifred and them are trying to get the spell books to uh create their potion so all of this goes on we see the witches end up at like we said, the devil's house or the person who they think is the devil played by Gary Marshall. <laughs> and um, <laughs> they're so funny because they mistake the kitchen for a torture chamber. And, um, you know, Mary's like completely obsessed with the TV because it's like a magic box that changes. And of course, Sarah and her slutty whore self wants to dance with the master in the dark. And, um, his wife is not having it. And um, I, I love that he call, they call each other like tart face. I never heard that insult until I watched this movie. So me and my sister call each other tart face if we're referring to this movie. Just totally random. So anyways, the kids try to get help from a supposed police officer who, again, is a man in costume because you don't know who to trust now that everyone's in costume on Halloween in a huge Halloween town. Finally, they decide that they don't have any other choice but to go and find their parents. So what they do is they show up at their parents, like City Hall, I guess, throws this huge party for like all the adults in the town. Like no children are allowed. Like all the children are literally just out running around by themselves. I don't know how small Salem is. For me, this is a no-go, but it was the 90s. So maybe that was okay back then. Yeah, that's true. They were all probably latchkey kids. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So all these parents are getting, you know, their dance on. And we are introduced to the amazing song, Witchcraft, covered by Joseph Malone. They run into City Hall, and we are um, shown this really cool, like, uh, kind of big band playing the song, and they are playing Witchcraft. We see this really cool um, band playing at City Hall, and we hear the song Witchcraft. It is being performed by Joseph Malone, and it was written by Cy Coleman and Carolyn Lay. Now, it was a little hard to find some information on Joseph Malone, but I'm going to start with Cy, who was one of the writers of this song. He is an American composer, songwriter, and jazz pianist. He 
has been around for quite some time. He is no longer with us. He did pass away in 2004, but he has worked like his entire life in Broadway. Um, he got his Broadway debut working with Lucille Ball. That's awesome. Isn't that so cool? So cool. I was like so impressed. Doing research on him was really fun. So he spent his entire life working um, after going to school to be a classically trained musician and jazz pianist. He did just, he lucked out. He was like a child prodigy. So he was extremely talented and he was sought after and he literally worked in Broadway from the age of nine. Wow, that's yeah. amazing. And then after going to school and, you know, just continuing to get better over time and over time, he was highly sought after and he was heavily awarded for his amazing music and scores. He won over 20 Tony Awards ranging from Best Music, Best Original Score, Best Lyricist, I can never say this word, Lyricist, Lyricist? Yeah, Lyricist. Okay. Best Lyricist and just overall Best Musical. He helped write. He also has won three Emmy Awards, two Grammy Awards, and an Academy Award. That's an incredible career. Yes, I know. I mean, he's just, he's so well-known and so sought after. He's also in the Songwriters Hall of Fame. He also has like a very specialized Songwriters Hall of Fame Johnny Mercer Award, as well as an ASCAP Foundation Richard Rogers Award for Lifetime Achievement in American Musical Theater. So he is just an amazing guy and just super, super awesome. And um, because he was so sought after, he actually wrote this song with help by uh, Carolyn Lay for Frank Sinatra. Oh, that's awesome. That's really cool. He wanted to dabble in um, not just, you know, Broadway's and the musical theater aspect, but he, he wanted to kind of segue into that um, producer kind of composing like how do I say that like uh, radio hits if you will that kind of lifestyle um, and so this song did reach number six in the U.S. it spent 16 weeks on the charts it did become even more popular because Elvis Presley covered it in his The Frank Sinatra Timex show Welcome Home Elvis and that is where this song became even more popular. This song was released originally in 1957. And it has gone on to just be over and over and over, like, awards. Because people cover it over again. Like, we have people from, like, Bing Crosby. We have tons of other, like, 50s and 60s artists. You know how, like, they covered it, like, every year or so by so many different people from like Jerry Lewis to Quincy Jones um, did a version of it to like Ella Fitzgerald and like I said Elvis Presley and Frank Sinatra did it together. It's even been covered by uh, Robert Smith and of course lots of big bands and instrumental versions of this song have been covered um, because it is just such a catchy tune and it's just really fun to hear this kind of like swingy style for all of these adults who are, you know, 
grooving and jiving around at City Hall while the Sanderson sisters are out there running around. So, anyways, we get this amazing song as we see the three kids come in and they're trying to tell their parents, but of course they're like not listening to them, not believing them because it's Halloween. His parents, again, kind of have that California laid back attitude where they don't believe in these types of things either. And even though the kids are trying to tell them like the witches are here, the witches are here. As a parent, I mean, I'm not sure if I would really believe that because who believes it? You know, 300 years later, here we are. The sisters are coming out, you know? Right, right. On top of that, I mean, you're an adult. You might be a little bit inebriated. You're having a good time. You're, it kind of is easier to not believe them so that you can just kind of continue on with Of course, day. of course. And, you know, they're trying to tell them, like, no, I'm serious. And then at this point, we see Danny, like, her whole face changes. She kind of screams, and she's like, oh, my God, they're here. And so as they're walking in, because it's Halloween, people think that it's just someone in costume amazingly dressed as the Sanderson sisters. Max even gets on stage and interrupts this song to say like, hey, hey, like your children are in danger. The Sanderson sisters are back. I lit the candle. I'm a virgin. Like here they are. And then the crowd moves back and this huge spotlight goes on the Sanderson sisters. And of course, Winifred and her quick-witted self says, oh, why, thank you for that wonderful introduction, Max. And she totally plays the part. And then they start singing the song, I Put a Spell on You. I put a spell on you. And now you're mine. <laughs> you can't stop the things I do. Winifred or Bet sings this song beautifully. We have um, Sarah and Mary in the back uh, doing the harmonies, but what the audience doesn't realize is they think that it's just these fake Sanderson sisters. They're actually putting a spell on all of the adults who are dancing. And they are putting a spell on them to keep dancing forever, for eternity, which is, if you think about it, insane. So... This song was originally written by Screamin' Jay Hawks in 1956. His own recording of this song is in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame 500 Songs That Shaped Rock and Roll. It's also included in Robert Christgau's basic record library of 1950s and 60s. This song has been covered and re-received over and over and over again. This song is actually the one that like made Screamin' Jay Hawkins who he was because it had such a kind of just different style of rock for the time. His voice in this song shot the song way up on the records because it was considered like shock rock. He had like this kind of operatic vocal delivery as well as kind of these wild screams during, which is where he got his name, Screamin' Jay. Um, and he put on shows following this kind of act, if you will, very like macabre, like props on stage and just like weird shock value type stuff. You know, very cool, very cool. I wouldn't mind going to see him in concert. 
I'm being honest. Oh, yeah. I imagine that that energy would be really fun to, like, right? be, be in the crowd for. Yeah. 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 Like, they said that, like, no performance was ever the same. Like, the way he did every song was different because it was so raw and just so different. Um, And that helped this song put him on the map, and it became his greatest commercial success, easily surpassing over a million copies himself. That's awesome. And I can really appreciate that, like like you said, how raw his voice and the sound is in that song, because it kind of takes me back to like, you know, when Johnny Cash and them were recording at Sun Records, and they didn't do any post-processing because they wanted the audio to sound human. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that's another thing that really set uh, Screamin' Jay apart is because he had this really unique sound and he could do these things with his voice and it didn't need to be processed. Yeah, exactly. So, and he was, like I said, that shock person. I mean, of course, the song was even like banned from certain radios and whatever. He was referred to as the Black Vincent Price, if you will. And actually, even such groups as like the NAACP kind of worried that his act would reflect badly on African Americans for the time that they were in. Oh, wow. Yeah. So he kind of like really pushed the envelope for this time. And you have to remember what was going on in the 50s for this song. And it, he was himself. He stood his ground. He didn't change who he was for record labels or for sales. And it turned out great for him. I mean, he's very well known now because he did his own thing regardless of what other people thought or, you know, said about his music and stuff. And I think that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And so this song, um, of course, we're listening to a cover of it in this movie, but Bette Midler in this movie is not the only one who has covered this classic cult song. It has been covered by a huge amount of people including um, just a couple notable people are the Animals, the La Dawes. We have CCR, Tim Curry. Mm-hmm. We have Vince Jones, uh, Marilyn Manson, um, Bonnie Tyler covered this, John Fogarty. Um, we have tons of people who covered it. Of course, like Joe Cocker. There's just, uh, the list goes on and on and on. Um, it's also been covered by Florence and the Machine, Jesse J, um, and it was featured in a Simpsons episode. Um, I'm spelling as fast as I can, I think is what it was called. Let me double check that. Yes, 2003, the Simpsons episode, I'm spelling as fast as I can. Ah, that must be a post-season nine episode. (laughs) (laughs) and they were amazing and included the original oh that's cool that's cool I'm gonna have to rewatch that episode yeah yeah I think it's really cool that they did that so I love it I love that they did that so um yeah I mean the song has just been covered by like so many different people so many different styles and even this one like the way that Bette sings it like she doesn't hit like all the kind of guttural sounds that uh Screamin' Jay did but she makes it her own, and that's what I think is most amazing about the song because it really is like if you listen to all these different covers, even people who have sampled the song, 
everyone's is so different. It's really cool to see that. Um, and of course, Bette has an amazing voice. And so when she sings a song as Winifred, she hits notes that are just inconceivable and phenomenal. She's awesome. Her voice just makes this song amazing at this time. And we get those great harmonies from Mary and Sarah in the background as they are putting an actual spell on all of the adults to keep them dancing while they quickly make their escape to go and drink their children's lives away. The witches are now escaping City Hall because they've got the parents dancing. They've got them where they want them. They're out to go get the children. Max, Allison, and Danny, along with Binks, are like, okay, what are we going to do? Like, the parents didn't believe this. Like, we've got to do this ourselves. That's when Allison decides, like, I have a great idea. Let's lead them back to the school. We'll put them in the kiln for, like, the art pottery class and burn them alive because witches can be burned. So they lure them in there. They lock it. They set it on fire. They watch the witches burn, and then they think it's over. They go home. They celebrate. They decide that, you know, it's all good now. Let's go to sleep. Um, but they make the mistake of opening up the spell book. At the same time, the witches are like, there's just, there's no, there's no hope. Like we're going to die. The spell was only good for tonight. If we don't make the um, potion to get the lives of all the children, we're, we're done for. We're just going to turn into ash. We're going to die. And so we see both sides of this going on. But the second that they open that spell book, it calls to Winifred because of this giant, like, beaming light, kind of like one of those, those, like, bright shining lights that, like, show you where the planes are. Like, yeah, like a searchlight? Yes, exactly. Um, and that's Binks wakes up, jumps on it, and he's like, oh, my God, do you have any idea what you've just done? He's like, don't open that at all. Now you have to remember at this time, the kids don't know that the witches are still alive. They've made it out of the fire somehow, some way. We don't know how either. And so all of a sudden the witches show up, take the spell book, take Danny. And this is when we get my most favorite song because Winifred is now out for blood, if you will. She wants all of the children. And she tells Sarah, sing, Sarah, sing. And we get Sarah's theme. This song um, is performed by Sarah Jessica Parker. And it was written by Brock Walsh for the lyrics, along with James Horner for the music. Now, James Horner was actually approached to score the entire film, but he was busy working on other projects, and so he didn't get to score the entire film, but he did want to have some kind of, you know, assistance in the movie, and so he did at least do this song. It's one of my favorites. So, um, James Horner uh, is an American composer, conductor, and orchestrator of over a hundred different film scores. He is known for his kind of like Celtic motifs in music, which you can absolutely hear in the song. Um, he got a start in 1979 and he's done just a plethora of movies from like The Lady in Red, Star Trek, Titanic is one of his most notable. 
and um, Avatar. He has just worked in a huge plethora of movies with lots of different directors. He is he was a pilot, and he died in a, a single fatality crash in 2015, which was quite upsetting because he did have a lot of different movies that he was supposed to be working on or signed up to do. And so uh, that was a big loss in the music world, if you will. So sad that we lost him. He he actually was like a musical genius and played like a ridiculous amount of instruments and just, you know, that like kind of genius ear for music, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so the song, the lyrics were written by, like I said, um, Brock Walsh. And there's a whole like background in information to Sarah's theme or Sarah's song, um, which you might also hear called Come Little Children. It is supposed to be kind of like a ploy off the secret garden and also have kind of like chants and incantations. Um, and it's meant to hypnotize children. And so that's the way it's written. It's a very short little song. Come little children, I'll take thee away into a land of enchantment. Come little children, the time's come to play here in my garden of magic. Um, and it was kind of, lyrics were taken or kind of adapted, if you will, by Brock from two uh, like other older kind of like folklore songs. So like, again, with those types of songs, we don't know who the original person or composer was because those were passed down over generation and generation. Um, but they did come from those folklore songs, Garden of Shadows and Garden of Mystery. And there's not a lot of information on those, so I apologize. But yeah, so I thought it was cool that they like actually, Brock actually did research and like really tried to find, you know, again, more um, historically correct or, um, you know, lyrically correct types of, I guess, inspiration for this little song that he helped write the lyrics for to make it match, you know, the time period that Sarah and the Sanderson sisters would have been around. So I just love that authenticity, if you will. And we do get to hear Miss Sarah Jessica Parker's amazing voice in this song. Before playing Sarah, she is well known for being on Broadway. She started Broadway at the age of 11 and she did several different things from like the inner, the innocence to Annie, um, which she did for several years, as well as uh, Footloose and Firstborn. And then she had some very big movies that she did. Um, of course, Hocus Pocus, Ed Wood, First Wives Club, Family Stone, Failure to Launch, and uh, Sex in the City as Carrie Bradshaw. Mm-hmm. Yes, which is probably her most notable. Like, if most people actually don't really realize that she started off at the age of 11 in Broadway. Um, they know her from Sex in the City. But she actually is a really good singer. And um, I think it's really cool that she requested to make sure that she was able to sing the song because there was some talks of having someone else sing or um, possibly having Kathy sing. But they, I mean, when you put Bette and Sarah in a movie, you got to have them both singing, in my opinion. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Sarah sings. And we start to see all of these children just take over the streets, take over the streets. 
um, and they are just, you know, under this spell walking towards Sarah's scene back towards the cabin. It's amazing to see the age range of all these children that are walking because Sarah's voice is just so powerful. Um, at the same time, we start to see like the sun is slowly rising and we know based on what Winifred has said that if they don't get this potion made, that the witches will turn into dust and all this spell will be for nothing. So Winifred has started to make this spell and they still have Danny. Max and Allison are able to trick the witches, get Danny and the book again, and they run off to the grave site once more, which is hollow ground. Winnie is not about to just give up. She flies over. They capture Danny, and she's trying to force her to drink the potion in the grave site. Max being the amazing big brother he is, sacrifices himself and chugs the potion. But because of the time that he did it, it was just too late. And in his attempt to kind of get the potion anyways, he kills Mary and Sarah because they fall into hollow ground. During this time, Winnie is trying to suck out the life of Max, but it is just too late and she too turns to stone clenching on to Max's shirt in her hands um, and then her entire statue turns to dust. The group has defeated the Sanderson sisters from coming back and taking all the souls and lives of the children and being forever immortal and beautiful and young. So that is definitely a win for them and because they killed the witches and they no longer have to worry about them coming back, Emily's spirit is set loose, as is Zachary's. And so he is able to be reunited with his family on the other side. And as he is, you know, his spirit is walking away with his sister, he explains, I had to wait 300 years for a virgin to light a candle. And that is how Hocus Pocus ends. <laughs> Aw, yay. Good job. I love that. Sorry if I did it super fast, but like I said, I went a little different, so I apologize if this was not your cup of tea, friends. Uh, if you really love those scores, I promise I will get better on it. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, so just a couple fun facts from Hocus Pocus that I wanted to share. One of the these are more like secrets, if you will. Um, and some of these are just really weird. Um, the movie did take eight years and there was actually like 11 writers wow. who helped write this script. So it originally actually started as um, Halloween House is what it was called. But by the time that Disney took over it, they had to change it. It actually started off as one of I guess more like an actual horror movie. And then after all of these rights and, you know, making it less scary, making it more kid-friendly, making it more Disney-esque, it became Hocus Pocus. Ooh, but I'm so curious to see what a darker, like, horror Hocus Pocus would be like. So to my knowledge, there is only one original script, and that's actually one of my fun facts, and it has never been released. Wow. Who has it? 
um, one of the original writers, and that is Neil Cuthbert. Oh my gosh. Die. How yeah. much would you pay to find out what's in that script? <laughs> no idea. I don't know because what if it sucked? I mean, that's true, but it would still be like the orig like the origin. That's true, that's true, that's true. That's cool. Yeah, that's true. So um another fun fact, because remember I told you this movie came out in the summer when they were actually filming it, they filmed in Salem. But it wasn't around Halloween. So they literally had to pay people in the neighborhood that they filmed to take down their Christmas stuff and put up Halloween stuff. And nobody complained, of course, right? No one complained. <laughs> yeah, no one complained. And uh, because we had such a starlet in this movie, Bette Midler, she had a really weird request in her contract. Her feet had to be shown for a certain percentage of on-screen time. That is an interesting clause. Is there a reason why? No. All it said was that her, her in her contract, there had to be isolated shots of her shoes and her walking. So, you know, we love to find who would maybe play this character. Guess who was... Almost cast for Max Dennison. Oh my gosh. I'm like, my head is like spinning with all the names. Um, okay, well, you said that James Marsden was the voice of the cat, right? Yes. Okay, so it couldn't be him. Um, mm -mm. He's such a cutie, though, by the way. He is. Gosh, yeah, yeah. Him. Um, 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 I, I, I can't just name one. Just tell me. Who is it? None other than Leonardo DiCaprio. Oh, of course. Of course. Yes. Of course. He was actually filming What's Eating Gilbert Grape. Oh, yeah. 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 Early 90s. Yeah. So he went on to do that instead. And that was the reason why he didn't do Max, which I don't know how I, I think I love Leo, though, so... Leo's great. Leo's great. But okay, so whatever happened to the guy who played Max? Omri. He's actually not doing too much now. Um, he went on kind of like Allison, like they do appearances and now every now and then, but uh, nothing big. Okay, that's cool. One of the other things that I thought was very interesting, they actually built broomsticks to, because they didn't have CGI back then mm -hmm. um so they built these operated broomsticks that were moved by like four to six different men and they had to like make the broom look like it was actually flying and the actual motion made bet and kathy nauseous every single time sarah was the only one who loved it wow that's actually pretty cool you know that is one thing about this movie the effects are actually pretty amazing for early 90s. Mm -hmm. Kenny paid attention to that. Um, we do see a character named Billy Butcherson, which is Winifred's ex-lover. And something that, of course, I thought was just I had to mention. Because Kenny is a choreographer, he asked the person who played Billy as part of his audition, because he's a zombie, he made him dance. Yeah, and I thought that was like, you know what? That's a great time because 
you got to be able to move. You're you're 300 years old, and he loved what he did, and he did like all his zombie walking and everything. And so yeah, and that is just a couple of really fun things. Um, there is so much more, but oh, my last fact because I had to include this one for Misa. Okay, so throughout the filming of this movie, there are four different cats that were used. They did not use CGI. They used real cats to play Binks. And then they also had an animatronic cat who later went on to play Salem from the Sabrina, the Teenage Witch series. Oh, I knew you were going to say something about Sabrina. That's so cool. I am such a fuck. I fucking Isn't love that Sabrina. Awesome? I fucking love Sabrina. Salem is so precious. Yes, that's awesome. I love that fact. That was a fun fact. I had fun with that fact. <laughs> say that three times fast. Uh, no. <laughs> joking, joking, joking. So, yeah. So, and that, my friends, is going to wrap up my fun facts and my fourth and final installment of Spooky Season for the 2020 year. <gasps> and what an epic end to Spooky Season. Wasn't it worth it, guys? Didn't you it appreciate was. how... <laughs> I'm so sorry for making you guys wait. I mean, who knew we'd be doing spooky season in December 2020? Am I right? Hey, man, there crazier shit has happened this year. <laughs> I agree. So yeah, it has just been again, I apologize. Things did not go the way that we planned, but I really hope that the fourth installment of Spooky Season was worth it. We heard an awesome score from Candyman. And you got some really fun songs with amazing covers from Hocus Pocus. Um, and I hope you just rush out and go and rewatch both of these movies as well as listen to the soundtrack. Um, and check out the blog because I know Misa's going to have the blog jam-packed with some really cool stuff this episode. Yes. Right after you listen to our episode, feel free to check out our Instagram at Hey Soundtrack City. And the link in our info will lead you to our blog where you will find music clips and videos from the movies that we chose, as well as any other fun tidbits that we mentioned and the originals to some of the covers that Frankie talked about. And be sure to follow our playlist, which is on Spotify. All of it will be found at the link at our Instagram at Hey Soundtrack City. <laughs> Check it out. Pass it around. Yay. Awesome. Good job, Frankie. I loved it. Yo, I'm super excited about this episode, guys. Candyman is awesome. I actually have it on my list to rewatch this weekend because I haven't seen it in forever. And I want to make sure I watch it before Jordan comes out. Yes. Oh my gosh. You well, you have a minute, but I do. I'm, <laughs> I'm really hoping. Did they say yet? Because I was trying to research it again, and I saw different dates. I saw February 2021. Is that correct? You know, let let me just before we before we wrap up. Let me go ahead and check it right now to see what's happening. Okay, as of right now, IMDb says expected August 27th, 2021. Oh, damn. But, I i mean, I trust IMDb with pretty much my life. Of course, <laughs> so of course. 
I do think it's definitely next year. Summer would not surprise me because, you know, summer. Summer. Um, but summer, somewhere between summer and Halloween, I think, is probably what they'd end up aiming for. That's what I would think in my head. But, you know, we shall see. Okay. Sounds cool, though. Sounds cool. Awesome. Awesome. I'm excited. I'm excited. Much excited. Okay, friends. Well, spooky season may be officially over for year 2020, but we have at least one or two episodes uh, scheduled for the rest of the year to take us out of this uh, shitty, interesting, long, complicated, depressing, unexpected year, if you will. Yeah. Uh, What are we supposed to call it? Uh, Unprecedented times? (laughs) At this time. (laughs) This sucks. (laughs) Yeah, man. Um, uh, We're not really in the holiday mood this year, and I think you guys can understand that. So we're probably not going to do anything Christmas-themed in December. Yeah. You're already going to be having to hear Christmas music everywhere, and you've had to see the decor since fucking September. So I think we all deserve a break from the red and green. Yeah, I'll be honest, uh, the movies that I have in mind are not Christmassy. Um, and that's not because, like, I'm not happy about Christmas. It's just not where my head's at, if I'm, I mean, it's just not. I mean, if anything, guys, this year should have taught you that it's not about the material items. It's not about that. Like, do something with your family. Put that money towards a vacation when it is safe to travel. Um, you know, put the money towards something that you can do together as a family. So that's my opinion, though. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think that does it for us. Frankie, anything else you want to add? Nope, just love you guys, and we'll see you in a couple weeks. All right, good things. Take care, guys. Wear your masks, be good people, and do good things. Yes, wash your hands, stay safe, take your vitamins. Have a great night, guys. Bye.